Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What do you like this to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down at the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and I've got back up in the shape of my good friends Taylor Parks Afternoon. and our old friend Simon Price. Hello chaps. Hello. Hello. Has there been anything uh, pop and interesting to comment on before we get our hands up this episode? No. 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 Still January. Yeah. No, it's not. It's February. It's it might as well February. be January. Why don't they just amalgamate January and February into one big fucking month called Cuntuary? <laughs> oh, where to start? Well, friend of the show, Richard Ogood, has been in touch and he, he writes, the discussion of Top of the Pop start times, as commented on by Neil in the last episode, has reminded me of the first viral internet thing I ever saw back in the mid-90s called Top of the Pops Club, which was basically agreement a load of people had to all have a wank as soon as Top of the Pops started, so you'd know that loads of other people were all having a wank at the same time. There's no trace of it online now, I regret to say. P.S. and no, I didn't. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Richard. I was just thinking, when I was 14, there's a good chance that I probably was having a wank round about the time that Top of the Pops started. Not because mm. Top of the Pops was on, but just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's every chance that with this very episode, uh, Blue Tulip Rose Reed was frantically jilling herself off at the sight of her <laughs> hero, Mike. But we'll come to that shortly. Indeed. Oh, spoiler alert, Simon. Spoiler <laughs> alert. So anyway, no more fannying about because this week's episode comes at you all the way from February the 1st, 1979. Or as we like to call it, the Aventis. Hey, ah. Taylor. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> so 1979, we're kind of like, we, you know, we're coming out of the winter of discontent, but, but we were all young, so there was no discontent about bodies piling up. That'd be quite fun, wouldn't it, actually? Apparently, 78, 78, 79 was literally the coldest winter since 61, 62 or something like that. So, you know, it wasn't just... Uh, these various strikes that Mr. Callahan was having to deal with, but, you know, genuine freezing weather, yeah. um, which I, I can remember vividly, actually. I was, you know, 11 at the time. Fucking brilliant, wasn't it? <laughs> Depends where you were, Al. Depends where you were. We'll come to that, I'm sure. At least it kept the bodies fresh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Radio was in the news this week? Well, Ayatollah Khomeini has arrived back in Iran and is about to kick the fuck off. Brenda Spencer has been charged with shooting two people at her school and inspiring a Boomtown Rat song in San Diego. 
The Dukes of Hazzard has run its debut episode in America, but the big news this day is that Sid Vicious is about to have a party to celebrate getting out of Rikers Island and is going to snuff it. Do you remember when Sid Vicious died? Yeah, I do. Um, although I wasn't fully on top of the details of how it had happened and what led up to it. Mm. So this is something I kind of learnt in retrospect when he'd already been kind of martyred by idiotic mm. punks because i remember a load of uh, load of punks kind of like hanging around in town on the on the saturday feeling very sorry for themselves and uh, kids like me but but not me cuz uh, i was too scared taking the piss out of them not as good as when elvis died really i i remember um you know at that age we were incapable of separating kind of uh facts from pop fiction or from you know um uh, uh performance and i remember there's that video clip um, for you know, it's it's on, on the uh, Sid Sings album cover and in the Great Rock and Roll mm. Swindle, where he's uh, I think he's singing My Way and he's walking down these steps with a white tuxedo and a gun and he fires mm. the gun towards the audience. And this kind mm. of myth went about that the reason he'd been in prison in the first place is because he actually shot someone dead at one of his concerts. <laughs> really? Kind of, yeah, like you know, sort of Alan Partridge, knowing me, knowing you style, that he actually took a pot <laughs> shot at his own audience. Nobody, nobody sort of seemed to figure out that that was just you know staged. Um, so yeah, that that became our reality then. That you know that that's why he was put away for killing an audience member. When Sid Vicious died, my dad told me that he had once been in a uh, motorway services where the Sex Pistols were on a table across mm-hmm. the way. Apparently, Sid Vicious was so obnoxious to uh, the waitress or the woman serving that she started oh. crying. He said, "Oh, it was terrible." He wanted some cabbage, <laughs> and they didn't have any. <laughs> And, go, and, I, and the more I think about this, the more I think, was that actually the Sex Pistols yeah. or was it just, just some oiks? Because I'm not sure if the Sex Pistols with Sid Vicious would have been in a motorway services. Um, well, if they, were, if they were gigging round, the wood. <laughs> yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, all right, maybe it was yeah. true. So I'm sorry, sorry to doubt you, Dad. <laughs> it's the cabbage thing, which is the weirdest detail of that story. Yes. You know, kids yeah, hate eating yeah. their greens, don't they? And there's Sid Vicious actually asking for his greens. Yeah, it's not really punk, is it? <laughs> no. So, on the cover of NME, Kevin Coyne. Hey. On the cover of Smash Hits, Rod Stewart. Boo. Which was the first Smash Hits I ever bought, actually. The number one LP in the UK is Don't Walk, Booge. A compilation disco LP which somehow featured 2468 by the Tom Robinson Band, <laughs> Substitute by Clout, and the theme tune to Empire Road by Matumbe. Brilliant. Uh, Armed Forces by Elvis Costello's number two. That's that's not right, is it? That's a bit like uh, the punk uh, compilation CD of the 90s. I love that, though, because I'm, I'm a big collector of KTEL and uh, Ronco and, you know, Telstar compilation albums. And... Uh, around that time, you almost always get that that they'll they'll keep the sort of um, theme going for maybe um, seven or eight tracks on on a side of the disc, and then suddenly yeah, it'll lurch, go fuck this. It, it'll lurch from it'll suddenly go from something like "When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman" by Doctor Hook into "Death Disco" by Pill, and yes. and there's no you know it just lurches like that, and I love that the fact that you know there will have been people out there who bought it to hear. I don't know, Woman in Love by Barbara Streisand and then mm. end up getting exposed to the slits, you know, for example. It's, it's yeah. just brilliant, yeah. 
Yeah. It used to be like this on uh, like hits of the 60s, those sort of all the great hits of the 60s. And it would always be the same records at every one because you couldn't license most of this stuff. You couldn't license the Beatles to be on those no. compilations or the Stones. So it was always stuff that had been on Pi Records yeah. because, you know, they just they were easy to buy up. So you'd always have the same stuff like... Uh, you know, Sandy Shore and things. And it, yeah, got really repetitive. Over in the US, the number one single is La Freak by Chic. And the number one LP was 52nd Street by Billy Joel. So, me dear boys, what were we doing in February of 1979? Uh, I was 11 and I was at a horrifically uh, brutal um, prep school, uh, private boarding mm. school in Sussex. Um, and uh, um, I was the only working class kid and the only Welsh kid there. Uh, I was there because my mum got a teaching job. And um, it's funny, you mentioned in, in the news there that the whole thing going on in, in, uh, in Iran at the time. We had kids there whose families had fled. So they were, they were people who had been, they, they didn't consider themselves Iranian. It was always Persian to them, you know. And right. uh, they were from families who probably were um, the acolytes of the Shah. And they, they were probably quite wealthy back in Iran. Yeah. But suddenly they fled to the UK with whatever they could gather and sent their kids to, to a boarding school to sort of keep them out of trouble. Fucking hell, though. They went from knowing the Shah to shopping at Spa. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it really wasn't Harry Potter. Let me tell you, it was it was more <laughs> like it was more like scum, but for posh and innocent kids. Did you talk to these Iranian kids about what was going on? Well, yeah, but we didn't really have much of an idea. We were we probably had as, as much of a grasp on that as we did on, on the circumstances of Sid Vicious's death. To be honest, yeah, uh, the the outside world was literally out of bounds. I once got into all kinds of trouble for escaping, and uh, I I got rounded up at the local little chef um, by the side of the motorway. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was just it was horrendous, and it was a sort of place where you get beaten for wearing the wrong coloured plimsolls in the wrong part of the ground, uh. and it, it left well, it, it exacerbated my existing stutter. And it left me with a lifelong habit of cracking my nail, uh, my my finger uh, knuckles in response to terror at being hit by teachers. Um, but apart from that, good times because it it gave me two years of Latin. So you know, swings and roundabouts. Oh eh? yeah, yeah, that's if, a good deal. That is. Although there there were no swings or roundabouts at the school. Funny enough. <laughs> Did you not ask the Iranian kids whose side they were in on? No, I honestly didn't get it. I just you know it was so dis. I couldn't have pointed to Iran on a map at that time. Um, there yeah. were, but there were kids from all over the world, you know. From you know, there, there were kids from from Lebanon who'd also presumably come to flee situations over there. But they were always the kind of, I guess, the international ruling class of these places. So although they were fleeing troubles, they they weren't, you know, they weren't the sort of huddled masses. They weren't refugees. They were kind no. of rich exiles. So th- they, I suppose, that the whole thing was fairly kind of virtual and theoretical to them too right they still did better than than our secular left-wing brothers in iran who thought they were in on this revolution until yes. they'd outlived their use and right. found themselves being tortured to death by ultra right-wing theocrats but that's often the way yeah i was just thinking it's true kids know nothing you've just reminded me for the first time in 35 years or whatever it is of uh we had a South African kid come to our school, like a white South African kid from mm. Durban. And he turned up and he said, uh, this is Michael, he's from South Africa. And we all said to him, what? I thought it was black people in Africa. And he said, yeah, we call them kaffirs. 
And it was like, oh, oh right, okay, yeah. It's just you haven't got a clue. Well, I was in my last few months at Westglade Junior School because I was 10, but going on 11. And I was already shitting myself about leaving and having to go to the comprehensive up, up the road or big school, as it's commonly known. I remember seeing people who used to be my mates who were a bit older uh, walking through the school when they chucked out in the shitty blazers and just scowling at you and just thinking, oh, fucking hell, doesn't look like they were having much fun up there. I remember one lad suddenly became a punk, who I used to know, and uh, every time I walked one way to go home and he walked the other way to come back from secondary school, he'd gob on me. <laughs> he was just... He was just being what a punk was supposed to be, Sorry. I suppose, or he was just a cunt. And, uh, yeah, it used to happen all the time. And then I saw him about 10 years ago when I moved back to Nottingham, and he was um, he was begging in the street. Oh, shit. And, uh, and I spat on him. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I gave him a quid. <laughs> I didn't spit on him. <laughs> I think you said before that uh, when you're growing up in Nottingham, a lot of the kids you hang around with is a, a bunch of black kids. Is that right? Yes. Well, when I went to this boarding school I was telling you about, that was literally the first time I'd ever met black people. And um, right. they were, you know, some of them were from Africa, some of them were just from South London. But that in itself, even though uh, in in some ways going to that school was this kind of very elite uh, stratum of society, it did really kind of broaden my mind. And I, you know, um, mm. so when when you mentioned um, the, uh, the 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 high school shooting in the states that that of course was uh, referenced in I don't like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. Mm. Um, there were these these twins from uh, uh, South Norwood uh, called Mark and Neil Smith who were brilliant at playing piano, black kids, and uh, mm. they uh, and they they were probably two of my best mates at the school, and they mastered the big piano intro to I Don't Like Mondays, oh, and I'll right. always yeah, and I just always always picture that, and it's actually quite a simple intro, but it sounds much more magnificent than it is, um, and yeah. I, was, I was so impressed by that, but but yeah, um, I I'd, I'd gone from exclusively hanging around with white Welsh kids to suddenly this multicultural, albeit quite wealthy, um, sort of body of, of, of students. So um, it was good from that point of view. This is the month, I think, or the month before, that I bought my first ever record without asking my mum to get it, uh, which was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. So, yeah, yeah, a good start. I mean, I think it was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, but, you know, there's I, I look at other singles that are around at that time and I think, oh, it could have been that one. But... Yeah, I was, you know, actively uh, chucking some money at pop music now instead of just having it wash over me. And, you know, this is a time when you start making decisions. And, you know, once again, you look back and go, why did I buy that instead of that? Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned getting your first copy of Smash Hits. Um, I yeah. got mine um, uh, at that school. My, uh, my mum went out and got me a copy of Smash Hits, which I hadn't heard of. She just saw a pop magazine and thought I'd like it. It was, uh, it was one with um, Debbie Harry on the front around this time I think Dreaming was their current single with Blondie's current single and um, yeah. you know if there was records that, that I liked um, she'd go out and get me she went out and got me Cars by Gary Newman uh, while I was at that right. school I remember that but mainly I was just uh, recording the top 40 or bits of it uh, in, yeah. in secret on a radio cassette player because it was like one of these things like like uh, Footloose or um, uh, We Will Rock You the Musical where rock and roll is mm. banned and you know but the kids have got these underground ways of listening to it and all that kind of stuff so yeah so what was on telly this day well BBC One has run Pebble Mill at One Ragtime You and Me Play School Don McLean and Peter Glaze going caravanning in Don and Pete Jack and Aura Space Sentinels John Craven's News Round, Blue Peter, 
Noah and Nelly, News Round, and just before this episode, Tomorrow's World muses upon the failure of Skylab and how NASA is trying to make sure it doesn't fall on anyone's head when it comes down to Earth. <laughs> BBC Two has broadcast Play School, then shut down for five hours because it's the 70s, then Open University, Charlie Chaplin in The Tramp, a Yugoslavian cartoon about nuclear war being set off by a butterfly, yes. highlights from the fifth Ashes test, and is currently showing a repeat of When the Boat Comes In. ITV has put on Little Blue, Pipkins, The Cedar Tree, Crown Court, Money Go Round with Tony Bastable, Danger UXB, Looks Familiar and Lasse, then Glenda Brownlow has an unwelcome visitor from the past in Crossroads, possibly Stalin or Jack the Ripper, and then Dick Barton, and they're currently running the episode of Emmerdale Farm where Amos Brilly gets mugged. Oh, feel the 70s-ness of that lineup. I've always loved the name Tony Bastable, which is... Um, oh, it's a classic, it's, isn't it's, it? It's as hilarious to an 11-year-old child, or almost, as as Christopher Lillycrap around the same time. Yes, um, yes. And the, that, that Yugoslavian cartoon about a nuclear war being set off by a butterfly, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I've, I've kind of forgotten that TV used to show kind of weird stuff like that, just, just to fill five minutes here and there. The weird thing about February 1979 is how all over the place it is because the punk is finished and it, there hasn't really been quite enough time for the post-punk groups to mm. come through uh, and change the scene. So you can see from this Top of the Pops, it's uh, a weird rag bag of all yeah. sorts of stuff. And it's just, you know, like the charts don't really know where they're going. Um, disco is huge, but apart from that, there's no real direction to it. And uh, sort of, you know, alternative music has just, just devolved into... Uh, sort of that period where it was like what stiff little fingers and things like that. It was like the the like what the late Marky e. Smith described as a, a new wave Hollywood where everyone's good but not great. Just a sort of a new star system and a lot of sort of. I agree you know, with you, except that just stiff like little substandard were versions of uh, they were all right for a the, couple of, of the old rock bands. Yeah, it's. Gotta be honest. All right then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to go way back to February of 1979. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hello and welcome to another star-studded edition of Top of the Pops. Your host for this episode of Top of the Pops is Mike Reed. Born in Lancashire in 1947, Mike Reed grew up in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey, becoming an estate agent while trying to be a pop singer under the name of Mickey Manchester. <laughs> did, did you not know this? <laughs> I'd forgotten. Yeah, and also Mike M I C, like you know, like a wazzy yeah. spelling, like like Nick Kershaw, Mike Reed. His broadcasting career began in 1976 when he teamed up with Steve Wright for the Read and Write show on Radio 210 in Reading. From there, he joined Radio Luxembourg in late 1977 and then moved on to Radio 1 in November of 1978. At the same time, he was still trying to become a successful musician, releasing Ted Revival singles under his own name and punkier ones as part of the group The Train Spotters, who put out a single called High Rise, which featured the lyrics, Never hit your girlfriend, nosy neighbours will call the police. 
Christ. Mm. At present, he's got the early evening Saturday night slot on Radio 1, but by August of this year, he'll be replacing Andy Peebles in the weekday slot before John Peel and would be the new breakfast show DJ in 1981. John Peel was quoted as saying, People like DLT and Mike Reed would often complain that they couldn't go anywhere without being recognised, but of course would go everywhere in a tartan suit carrying a guitar so they would have attracted attention in a lunatic asylum. Now, Mike Reed, where do we start with this? I mean, the first thing I want to chuck in is what a meteoric rise. Yeah, he did seem to come from nowhere because by mm. the time I was out of the kind of detention centre of that school I was talking about and back in reality, he was suddenly, you know, Mr. Um, Breakfast Show. He was the main man on yes. Radio 1. Yeah, he Just was. Just come from nowhere. Yeah. And... um. I've got to be honest, um, I quite liked him. Um, mm. I, uh, you know, I, I can't rewrite history, I can't lie. Um, the heart wants what it wants. At the time, I enjoyed his kind of chortlesome twee style. Um, I, you know, what can I say? I was 12, I was getting ready for school, I, I listened to it pretty much every day. Mm. And he seemed not exactly uh, a new generation, but just a slight shift forwards from... Yeah, you know the old the old school dinosaurs of the early seventies. Yeah, I mean, at least in, in terms of what he was into. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain this to the younglings who are listening, but yes, there was a time when Mike Reed was the cool one on Radio One. Well, he was the first of those Radio One DJs to want to seem cool in a way that kids might understand. That's certainly true. Yeah. Um, you know, like there was people like like DLT kind of thought they were dudes. You know what I mean? Mm. But they had no connection with teenagers and they didn't necessarily feel like they needed to have one. Yeah. Well, Mike Reed here is, in this episode, he's 31 years old. Right. He looks older, but he's 31. Yeah. Uh, and yet he's supposed to be the voice of youth. And it's just weird. This is the first time, or almost the first time, probably since the 60s, that you see someone on top of the pops making an effort to seem like they're part of the generation watching mm, rather yeah. than... Uh, lecturing them on the superiority of the AOR ballad. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, but I mean, he fails appallingly because, you know, I don't think, I don't think anyone over about, you know, 10 or 11 ever thought Mike Reed was cool. I mean, well, um, let's, 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 let's put a bit of perspective here. I mean, if you stood me now next to DLT, Simon Bates, and Jimmy Savile, I'd look like fucking Miles Davis, wouldn't I? <laughs> But Mike Reed at the time, I mean, looking back now, he, he looks like a, a trendy English teacher. I think the only thing that's missing from his outfit is a little silver CND badge. Huh. But but at the time, the idea that, that someone presenting Top of the Pops not only knew who the jam was, but appeared to like them, uh, that was a big deal, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I think there was enough about him at that time that you'd at least if you were a kid watching it, give him the benefit of the doubt until he proved otherwise. Mm. I don't know. I remember seeing him uh, link out of a Morrissey performance on Top of the Pops with the words, anyone who likes Oscar Wilde and Billy Fury is all right with me. Uh, now, that's fucking desperate, you know. That, and I mean, Also, like, yeah, because Oscar Wilde would have banned Relax, uh, wouldn't he? And if you got to say, and you, Kip. Well, this <laughs> is it, you know, everything that Mike Reed has done in the last two decades or more from his, um, you know, the, the, the failed Oscar Wilde uh, musical that he tried to stage yes. 
to the mockery he's received for his UKIP Calypso to um, yes. the car crash of um, an onstage Q&A he did just the other month with uh, Chevy Chase. Um, yes. just It fills me with glee when, when things go wrong for him because he's, <laughs> he's clearly <laughs> such an appalling human being. But at the time, I, I, I certainly didn't know that. It's easy to say in retrospect, oh, obviously he was a dick. But, ah, I don't know. I didn't think so. Yeah, by comparison. Yeah. But when you go back, right, if you look at... I, a couple of years ago, for reasons I can't adequately explain, I watched a load of old episodes of Pop Quiz <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> and the, the deadening dryness and lack of wit that he brought to that mm. is unbelievable. It's like there's all these coked-up, pissed rock lags on the, on the teams. And then there's this ludicrous school teacher trying to be hip yeah. dragging it all down and they're, they're deathly they've just got this dead atmosphere mm. there's no life to them at all yeah I mean um, by that time he had this really bad mullet and the Sue Pollard glasses he, he was he was turning into <laughs> stewed dapples of terror hawks right in front of our eyes wasn't he but he he speaks entirely in cliches as well like when this Top of the Pops begins the first thing he says is hello and welcome to another star-studded edition of Top of the Pops. Mm. It's like just this boiler. The one thing that seems different about his presentation style than some of the people we've looked at in in the earlier 70s are that he actually seems to have sat at home and written his links. He's, you know... Mm. There, there. Are, there's a pun. There's yeah. a pun in nearly every link. It might be an appalling pun, but he's actually he's not Emperor Roscoe just kind of winging it and talking no. gibberish. Do you know what I mean? No. He's actually no. given it some thought, and I don't know whether that's better or worse. Well, this would have it's been one true. of his first gigs on Top of the Pops, wouldn't it? So he'd have been one to make a good impression, clearly. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And as we will see, he's trying a bit too fucking hard to make a good impression at various points yes. in the show. I'll tell you what yeah. I used to hate the most about Mike Reed in the eighties was. You know, he always used to get his guitar out and it was like, everyone would go, oh no, Mike's got his guitar out. And it was this sort of cloying, false self-deprecation of the guitar thing. It wasn't even original because like, you know, Jasper Carrot used to do this shtick. But it's Mm. like he wants to play his fucking guitar and he wants to be cute, right? Like, oh, no one wants me to play. Uh, let me be the centre of attention while pretending to laugh at myself and then still and play those the those are always thing. the worst people. Those are the worst people at a house party or a, pic- yes. a picnic or anything. Oh, Somebody turns yeah. up with an acoustic guitar and they say, do you mind if I play a little bit? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah and it's almost, almost always redemption song, isn't it? Yeah, redemption song, absolutely, yeah. Um the thing we might read is that he even does that when he's interviewing people. He's, you know, he's, he's turned yes, up. Yes, yes, he did. I can't remember who it was. It, was, it might have been Paul Simon or some somebody of, of you know fairly great stature. And Mike Reed turns up with his acoustic and tries to get them to sing along with him. Um, oh, it might he, be something he did he'd that with Chevy Chase, didn't oh, well, he? Yeah, he certainly did with Chevy Chase. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, as as we'll see in, in this episode, he desperately wants to be a rock star. He still hasn't given up on that even though no. uh, Mike Mick Manchester didn't quite get there he's, yeah he's, he still craves that more than anything the funny thing is when yeah. you listen to his music I mean it's obviously it's it's fucking terrible but the, the best track he ever did is called uh, What the Dickens and it's uh, it's like a Tory Bob <laughs> Dylan he's uh, it's a, a rant oh, about no. having to pay his taxes to a sort of protest oh, yes. song back and he goes uh 
he's addressing the taxman. He says, uh, "You're a legalized vampire. You rob your own countrymen. It's it's horrendous." <laughs> but that he's part of that. Hey, it's good enough for George Harrison. It's good enough. Yeah, for but him. this is it. Yeah. He's, he's a he's a sixties man basically. He's a non yeah, a yeah. non counterculture sixties man, and part of being that kind of sort of would be sharp sub mod quite quite straight 60s like the sort of people who um who embraced the idea of classlessness because it obscured their own privileged upbringing and made them seem like <laughs> individualist entrepreneurs you know it was hmm. there's a particular kind of toryism that was reactionary and patriotic but also sort of spivvy and enterprising and you know into fast cars and that sort of thing uh and i mean it's all over the place in that 60s generation when you look at it all the pirate radio people uh you know michael kane um nouveau riche footballers you know uh i mean and the thatcherite boom was created by those people banging into the sort of upwardly mobile lower middle class um and it's that combination of entitlement and dumb patriotism and the illusion of individual achievement is very UKIP and it makes complete sense Mm. that someone like Mike Reed uh, would end up in that place. But, you know, at the time it wouldn't have occurred to me that he's a Tory because I think he kept his political opinions pretty quiet at that time. Um, And, yeah, he was into the jam and I thought, well, the jam are into, you know, uh, nuclear disarmament mm. and, and you know voting Labour and all, you know certainly by that point they were um, so I just assumed well he's probably right, one of the good guys I just yeah I had no idea yeah Simon explain to people who don't know about Blue Tulip Rose Reed right yeah I was wondering when we're going to get alluded, into this we've alluded many a time and off to her but I think we need the full explanation now here's the opportunity right well in the 90s there were two great fly-on-the-wall reality documentaries that became kind of cult classics. One of them, of course, is the one from which this podcast gets its intro, In Bed with Chris Needham, a.k.a. Teenage Diaries. Uh, And the other, it was called I'm Your Number One Fan. Um, It was on Channel 4, and it was about stalkers. And, I mean, I know stalking is no laughing matter. And for all that I said about... um, finding glee in the mishaps of Mike Reed in later years. Um, I genuinely wouldn't wouldn't wish what happened to him on anyone. That said, no. that said, the documentary is absolutely hilarious. It's guilty laughs, but you cannot help laughing at it. And um, uh, it, the, it, it follows various people. There's somebody who's stalking the snooker player, Stephen Hendry. There was somebody who's obsessed with Princess Diana and is convinced that the royal family's all lizards. He calls the queen a lizard beast. And this German guy, is, <laughs> he's amazing in, in, in himself. And, and uh, you know, yeah. he almost gets overshadowed by the more spectacular fireworks of Blue Tulip. But um, yes. the main thing that everyone remembers it for is this woman... Um, from uh, somewhere like Letchworth. It's some sort of garden suburb north of London. Um, Mm. And she's changed her name to Blue Tulip Rose Reed. She is um, obsessed with with Mike Reed. And this is in the 90s now, when Mike Reed at this point was no longer on Radio 1. He was on Classic FM. And um, so the the first we see of her is her uh, lying in bed (laughs) under a filthy duvet while uh, Mike Reed's voice is coming out the radio speaker and she's making sex noises uncontrollably 
she's you know mm. really on the brink of orgasm just from the sound of his voice um other things that we we, we learned during the show is that she has named <laughs> her washing machine mike reed um we 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 see her go into a sort of pronto print shop to get t-shirts oh, yes. made to get a, a top made saying um uh, when will you get into bed with me and uh, with pictures of mike reed all over it and the guys by the counter said you know uh so who who you know who who's this in the picture and the, and she goes my husband mike reed and mm. they go i thought he was gay <laughs> yeah yeah oh, no one no one says he's gay no yeah. one she starts slamming her fist on the counter Sorry, I'm upset. Yeah, all of that. Um, and then she, she she goes to Classic FM and uh, starts doing chants outside. Give me an M, give me an I, give me a K. Oh, and all, it's the, terrible, I, isn't I it? I think some of the best bits are when she's reminiscing about the first time she saw him. She turns up to mm. the um, Radio 1 car park and uh, and, and Mike, Mike Reed's there uh, coming out of the building with um, Ed Stupot Stewart. and uh, yeah, In blue yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. And she becomes breathless and, and she's, uh, not my favourite DJ of all times. And uh, she goes <laughs> up to him and says, is your name Mike Reed? And he goes, yeah. And uh, she slaps his bum and, and then she goes, oh, tenders. And, uh, yes. and then, then she uh, turns to the camera and she says, uh, Ed Stewart's breath stinks. Mike Reed has got beautiful breath and yes. see this is what I'm, I've, I've been quoting it now for about three minutes in a row it's endlessly quotable and oh, uh, um, League of Gentlemen definitely. were really into it League of Gentlemen um, in Royston yeah. Vasey put loads of quotes from it on uh, on, on the sort of um, newspaper billboards outside the news agents um, and it's become a real cult thing um, it's the sort of thing that nowadays it would go viral on the internet for about a week and then everybody would forget yeah. about it but because there wasn't really any internet in the way we understand it now in the late 90s it was this thing that was passed around on copy of Videos, copy yeah. uh, VHS tapes. And Taylor remembered because, you know, uh, we, we used to sit around late at night with mates playing it, especially if, if someone hadn't seen it. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Right, right. Sit down. Sit down. You're going to watch yes. this. And yeah. Yes. And the, the amount of people I've kind of inducted into it. It's strange, though. The funny thing is that like nowadays, I think, well, as someone who's had mental health problems myself, every fibre of my being is telling me not to laugh at someone who is quite yeah. literally barking mad. Oh yes, she yes. is barking. But, yes. To, yes. but to pretend yes. that the very specific details of her personal madness aren't funny would be kind of priggish and dishonest and it wasn't us who had the awful idea of making this programme in such an unethical way, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. In a way I feel worse for although he's dead now for klaus wagner the uh the diana obsessive who's just as troubled but you don't feel bad for him i think because he's german and male and a bit unpleasant but yes. he has it bad he's equally afflicted um and his obsession is dead which proves his paranoia correct and the beast is still on mm. the throne uh yeah yeah I'm, re I'm reading one of the letters she wrote here uh well bits of it uh, it, darling sweet lips Mike Reed how would you like to discover a dead body in your doorway because that is what is going to happen if you don't marry me yeah that's the point where you I'm kind a of very uh, jealous stop laughing woman. and your face freezes mm. yeah 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 I mean it's really grim and um, that that wasn't the end of her story either she, she turned up no. on Britain's Got Talent yeah. A few years later, so they some yes. some researcher, some snickering researcher at Britain's Got Talent was obviously hip to the blue tulip cult and had somehow tracked mm. her down. And they got her got her on just to sort of go on stage with uh, a feather bow around her neck and to um, 
Bark, as Taylor alluded to, um, Portsmouth yeah. by Mike Oldfield. Yes. Because uh, yes. that was her party trick. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope she's all right. I hope she's stopped stalking Mike Reed. Um, and I, I, oh, God, I hope so. It'd yeah. be great if she just went, oh, I, I didn't know he was into UKIP. Fuck him. <laughs> There's also a great uh, moment in that document because they interview Mike Reed um, and ask him what yes. he thinks about it. And there's a brilliant moment of another of his uh, another of his failed attempts to seem cool, where he says, uh, "Well, his words of wisdom, right?" He says, "Well, love and hate are very closely connected. It's like uh, like Oscar Wilde said in the Ballad of Reading Jail: each man kills mm. the thing he loves, which is and there's a pause, and he says, which is true." <laughs> yeah, thanks for that insight, Mike. Yeah, cheers, Mike. Yeah. I mean, what I'm suggesting is next time he goes bankrupt, let's let's get a Kickstarter going. Mike Reed, million pounds, sex with blue tulip Rose Reed on video. Jesus Christ. Come on, Mike. Give her what she wants. We'll play the icicle works. Oh. Yes. Oh God. Oh, that yes. was the thing. Yeah. Um. That that fact emerged. Was that in a Smash Hits interview or something? Where I I can't mm. remember where it was. But he did reveal that. Um. Was it Love Is a Wonderful Color or just the Icicle Works yeah. in general? Was was what he liked to listen <laughs> or just to? Just one when he's song. Making love. Yeah, one song. Yeah. <laughs> over and over and yeah. over. No, just once. <laughs> <laughs> And for all we know, this episode that we're talking about, because it was early in his career, this might be the one that Blue Tulip herself was watching and thought, oh, fancy a bit of that. He's a cracker. Hello and welcome to another star-studded edition of Top of the Pops. Charles Hatcher in Nashville in 1942, Edwin Starr became a member of the Cleveland doo-wop group The Future Tones in the late 50s and moved to Detroit in the early 60s. As a solo singer, he was signed to Rick Tick Records, an early rival of Motown, and scored his first UK hit in May of 1966 with Stopper On Sight. By 1969, Rick Tick was bought up by Motown and Starr scored UK hits with 25 Miles and War, which got to number three in November of 1970. After recording the soundtrack to the exploitation film Hell Up in Harlem, he relocated to England where he made a living on the Northern Soul Circuit, eventually moving to Nottinghamshire. That's me punching my heart with pride. And helped Stevie Wonder feel a cow for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Stevie Wonder came round and uh, a cow obviously mooed. And Stevie Wonder said, oh, is that a cow? And he said, yeah. He says, oh, I've never never touched a cow before. And he said, right, come out. He shouldn't have told him what it is. He should have done that, you know, like the parable of the blind men with the elephant. And they have to sort of feel around yeah. and figure out what it is. And One thinks it's a tree. The other thinks it's a mouse, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And all that. Yeah, right, right, come on, Stevie. What do you reckon this is? You know, uh, how how good are your inner visions on this one? Very good, very good. After moving from Motown to 20th Century Records, he had a go at this disco thing everyone was going on about. And this is his first top 40 hit since Stop the War Now in February of 1971. And it's a new entry this week at number 27. Now then, 
Edwin's having a go at this disco thing, and I think it's paid off for him, don't you think? Yeah, the sound of this record is a weird lurch backwards and forwards between New York, Berlin and Philadelphia, because there's a bit of Philly soul in it as well. Mm. And it's sort of chasing the various sounds of the moment. And it is that self-conscious, and it shouldn't really be as good as it is. But he's still so talented at this point that it comes out brilliantly. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't have the the class of his earlier stuff you just mm. you just focus on the contrast between the the robo beat and the freaky noises and his really rich and intense singing and it's totally convincing as well as completely transparent mm. can i surprise you um i i don't like this record really yeah and um i really like all the edwin star hits you mentioned um apart from stop the war now which i've got to admit i haven't heard and it and it's making me chuckle just to think about that because uh the other week we were talking about midjure and slick the way they followed up um uh forever and ever with requiem which basically sounds exactly the same and that Mm. and we were riffing a bit on that whole thing of of people who do these identical follow-ups like uh um dance the kung fu by carl douglas and all of that and uh, (laughs) this one it's like you know he's already had a hit with war and then he brings out a follow-up called Stop the War Now, as if we hadn't heard him first first mm. time. Edwin, we heard you. You were yeah. quite insistent on the anti-war thing there. Yeah, you should, uh, should have done a single after that called uh, Do I Have to Say This Again? Yeah. <laughs> I still hear but banging. Five years later, the war was over. Uh, yeah, so yeah. He, he put out a single called At Last. Yeah, for about <laughs> fucking time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, his 60s Motown stuff, particularly, um, you mentioned SOS Stopper on side. Classics. And, uh, yeah, oh, 25 Miles, brilliant. Oh. brilliant you know, sort of like Northern Soul dance floor, um, yeah. immortal, immortal tunes, th- those are. This one, um, his voice definitely works with disco. Uh, mm. I think, you know, he's got that thing that people like you know daryl pandy had in the in the 80s with mixing house music with um this really really kind of deep heartfelt soulful vocal um and um so it's, it's not that it's just the tune itself it's what can i say it's it's kind of cold it freezes me out it is mm. the, there doesn't seem much much kind of warmth to it and i'll tell you what it is um it doesn't have any bottom half the body it's all upper body hustle that's mm. what it feels like to me yeah, no, no hips and no arse, It's got no arse. Yeah, it's, you know, like um, Dan Hartman, Instant Replay. It's got that kind of feel to it. And I don't like that kind of disco, got to mm. be honest. That kind of busy, hustling, but upper body disco. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I feel disloyal because I'm a massive Motown fan. Um, but yeah, this doesn't done do it for me. I actually saw Edwin Starr um, once, though, live. Um, he turned up to this nightclub PA thing in Cardiff in the top rank. Yeah. With And it was one of these random uh uh kind of gatherings of celebrities that you used to get doing tours around nightclubs it was edwin Starr, woo gary davis Chris, christopher quinton from coronation street <laughs> and and dlt God. how about that jesus christ that's a that's a collective isn't it I was really excited to see Edwin Starr because I was in the first flush of being a kind of, you know, 20 years after the fact Motown fan. Um, and uh, Edwin Starr, I don't know what I expected. I think I expected him to turn up in this kind of 
bathe of black and white that everything else around him would be in colour mm. and he'd be in an old black and white photo <laughs> and he, he'd look like, you know, like he did in 1966 or something. But instead, he had this massive kind of... This, this um, white leather jacket with huge shoulders, like... Uh, it looked like a cross between something Gary Glitter would wear and something that Mr. T on the A-Team would have worn. Right. And um, oh, it was God, all it was all kind of... And this is about 1984 or something like that. And it's all kind of um, glitz, and it was very 80s. And, I mean, fair play to him. You know, he's, he's trying to stay relevant and yeah. trying to cling on to, to the zeitgeist with his fingernails. But, but you don't want like, that, do you? No, I was like, come on, Edwin, you're better than this. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're a, Mot- you're a Motown soul man. Wear a nicely tapered suit. Yes. And, and don't exist in colour. Yes. <laughs> and stop hanging around with fucking Brian Tilsley and DLT and Gary Davis. <laughs> exactly. Oh, imagine them sharing a bus. <laughs> oh. It was like um, Gino Washington, wasn't it? Gino Washington. Yes. Uh, famously, this this is why Dexys wrote a song about him. He was over here and available. Mm. Um, Gino Washington. He was a, a real um, living, breathing black American soul singer mm. who, even though he wasn't even third division in the States, because he was over here yeah. and, you know, he was a real American black man, he was revered. And I think Edwin Starr sort of figured that out himself. I think he realised what was going on with the Northern Soul scene and all of that. And he thought, if I go to the UK, they're going to treat me like a god and I can make a nice living from doing kind of nightclub PAs. Mm. And, and you know, fair play to him. But, yeah, um, yeah I was, you know, being a kind of pathetic white sort of Motown snob, I was all about the early stuff. Mm-hmm. See, I I do like this record, but for the first couple of times I watched this Top of the Pops, I barely noticed it because I was so distracted by the photos because they play it over the chart rundown. And, yeah. Um, it's a really odd set of pictures this week. Oh, um, it is, yeah. Like, there's a... I had another Steve Priest moment seeing the shot of Leaf Garrett. Um, for Leaf a, Garrett, for yes! For a split second and thinking, oh, she's nice. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you said that before me so that I don't have to put in the kind of I'm not gay but preface. My God, how good looking is Leaf Garrett? Yeah. yeah. And then there's a shot of the exquisitely horrible looking Dr. Feelgood followed immediately <laughs> yes. by a picture of Funkadelic. But it's like 14 black people in military fatigues forming a human pyramid while throwing peace signs. And it's like if you want to see a, a contrast between Britain and America in 1979. It's right there. <laughs> yeah. I've got down here Funkadelica creeping up on the camera in combat fatigues as if they're playing What's the Time, Mr. Wolf? <laughs> <laughs> and then, the best of all, there's a picture of the Shadows um, yes. who were in the charts. I think it would have been their version of a uh, theme from The Deer Hunter. Um, yeah. they're just Cavatina. Yeah, they'd just released an album called String of Hits. Actually, let, let me correct you there. It wasn't that. It was Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Oh. Right, yeah. Another yeah. track off String of Hits, like which also, I think, had their haunting, twanging instrumental takes on Bright Eyes. And, yes, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, Parisian Walkways by Gary Moore. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. The woman who lived next door to me had that. Um but and if you don't want to fuck me, fuck off by Wayne County <laughs> in the electric chairs. <laughs> but the the picture is is fucking amazing. This publicity shot. All that's missing is the sticker on it saying not to be used. It there's the, they look fucking terrible. Like Hank Marvin looks like he's just been told that his balls have got a week to live. 
Um, <laughs> really old and broken. He looks like he's sat down with a blanket over his knees. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Bruce Welch, former paramour of Olivia Newton-John, looks like the Coventry City physio, 1978-79 <laughs> season. And then Brian Bennett at the back is hovering over them like a... He's got his arms around both of them. He's got a hand on each shoulder, hasn't he? Yeah, like a cosmic puppet master slash knicker thief. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other ones I've got is that uh, Elton John is cuddling a horse, which was nice. Uh, Paul Evans... Uh, yeah. he's, pop, he's popped his shirt collar up, shaky style, but the problem is it's a 70s shirt, so it comes up round his ears. Looks like he's got <laughs> no neck. And that would have been for Hello, This Is Joni, right? Yes. So yes. Uh, not so uh, clearly not the only um, car-related drama happening in the charts. No, not This week all, he no. says no spoilers, yeah. So the following week, Contact soared to number 11 and will eventually get to number 6. The follow-up, H-A-P-P-Y Radio, got to number nine in June of this year, but it would be his last solo hit in the UK. How would you feel about that one, Simon? Was that the theme from Only When I Laugh? <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, H-A-P-P-Y, we're here to make your day go by. It's a musical natural high. However, he appeared on Ferry Aid's cover of Let It Be in 1987, which got to number one in April of that year, and he teamed up with a cookie crew for Got To Keep On, which got to number 17 in April of 1989. That was quite good, that. Yes, it's fucking genius, that song is. I love that song. Yes, it's 25 Miles kind of rebooted with a cookie crew rapping over the top, and it actually worked, yeah. It does, yes. Alas, he died in Bramcote, Nottinghamshire in 2003, and he's buried in the same graveyard as loads of my family, which makes me weirdly proud. Well, it's nice to see them back on top of the box, celebrating six years of hits. It's Nazareth. In a modest jacket with uh, nice little lapels, a button-down check shirt and PVC trousers mentions that it's nice to see the following band back on top of the pops celebrating their sixth anniversary. That's a, a sugar anniversary in the UK and a nine-one in America. Um, it's Nazareth and May the Sun Shine. Formed in Dunfermline as the Shadettes in 1961, Nazareth changed their name in 1968 and got a bit heavy before moving down to London in 1970. After supporting Deep Purple on tour, they first made the charts in June of 1973 when Broken Down Angel got to number nine. I think that's what Mike Reed's referring to there. After two further top 20 hits in 1973, they became a bit of a global concern, becoming particularly big in Canada and scoring a top 10 US hit with Love Hurts in 1975. This single is the follow-up to Place In Your Heart, which got to number 70 in May of 1978, and it's currently at number 51. Now then, here's a band who uh, haven't looked at the notice board 
telling them that it's the Aventis. <laughs> this horrible sway-along folk metal feel to this is mm. so horrible. It's lumbering and fidgety at the same time. And it wouldn't be so bad if you didn't have to see them because yes. they look yes. almost too perfectly like you'd expect a band making this music to look. If, yeah. if you were feeling particularly uncharitable. Like the singer, yeah. Dan McCafferty, he looks like he looks like what Diego Maradona would have looked like if he'd been Scottish. Like this little <laughs> sort of sort of like if Bruce Banner was changed into the Hulk and he got stuck halfway through. <laughs> sort of like part human, part mutant misfit. Imagine uh, if Kevin Keegan's mum had had twins and kept one in the attic. <laughs> just and, to go uh, up there and I'm, hit it in the face with a stick when she needed yeah. to let off some steam yeah I mean his outfit as well is he's got he's, he's, he's basically wearing a white vest he's got some red white and blue braces and a pair of tight jeans that were known round my way as ball splitters <laughs> they are incredibly <laughs> tight so the overall effect is he looks like a really violent looking mork out of and he looks like he's just going to burst out of a massive egg and put your fucking teeth down your throat and there's the young George Galloway on bass uh, <laughs> chosen as it's the least Jewish instrument uh, there's a bloke on acoustic guitar in a pink jacket and a sort of RAF wings shaped moustache who looks like fucking yeah. Begbie um, I mean this is this is not a band you'd want to get into a fight with. No. This is a band you wouldn't want to get into a train with. Never mind anything else. No. Or the same postcode. No, no. They're, they're the band, they look like that, you know, that rock cliche of uh, when they take their shoes off in the van and they'd have, mm. like, comic-style smelly socks, you know, with a big yes. big toe with poking out. Mushrooms growing off their toes yeah. and that, yeah. And a, just a single <laughs> fly buzzing around. And the word but, nith. <laughs> hovering in the air yeah, stink line wavy stink lines um, yeah yeah and they look like they would be skillful and frequent pub fighters uh not well, least uh, because they would have nothing to lose because their face yeah. is already, already smashed in as it is yeah it's not the kind of thing if, you, if you're having a late tea this is not what you want yeah but i would contend that they are not the ugliest looking band we're going to see on top <laughs> of the pops tonight and i'll just i'll just leave it there for now yeah. but simon what's this doing for you well they are the hypervalue acdc and um <laughs> hypervalue by the way is a bit of a shout out to anybody in south wales who might be listening but you get the idea and uh, dan McCafferty, yeah i mean he's the hypervalue bon scott yeah I enjoyed uh, Taylor's descriptions of the band members, but instead of George Galloway, um, I had uh, Terry McDermott on bass and, uh, mm. and and Dave out of Chaz and Dave on lead guitar, um, Jeff Lynn on drums, and uh, oh. yeah, um, but the guy, I, I actually really like the guy um, in the gingham jacket on the acoustic guitar with a pointy tash, so I decided to find out who he is, and it turns out... That's Zal Clemenson, um, previously of the sensational Alex Harvey band. Oh, that's him who dressed up as a um, Piero and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, he joined Nazareth just for yeah. about a year, year and a half, and that's him. I used to hate him. <laughs> I used to think he's the biggest wanker ever to be on top of the pops. And then I read some background and how they started up in Glasgow, and then I, I changed my mind completely. I thought, if you can play fucking pubs in Glasgow just like that... <laughs> 
You're a fucking better man than Balls I. Balls of steel. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, 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 yeah. When you see him on this uh, in civvies, you understand why he was so fearless because he looks fucking rock. <sighs> I heard a story about him that I guess shortly after he quit Nazareth, um, he was actually working as a taxi driver in uh, Glasgow because the uh, sensational Alex Harvey band were no more. And um, somebody who was, uh, you know, driven by him, recognised him, because, you know, you probably would recognise this guy with or without the Piero makeup, and just asked him what, what the hell he's doing now. And it turned out that he was doing better driving a taxi than he was in any of his bands. So they asked him oh, to... If he wanted, if he wanted to gig, so uh, he basically joined Barbara Dixon's band, the kind of the <laughs> pop folk singer. So you know, he, he did a year and a half or however long, uh, touring around with her. So obviously, a gun for hire, and good luck to him. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I quite, I quite like this record. You know, I think it's all right. I do think Nazareth is a brilliant band name because it's so crass and pompous and so absolute, right? Uh, like it, what it reminds me of, I mentioned to a few people uh, back in the late nineties. I know, I, I know it. Form, I know. Go on, <laughs> I know this. I think you probably do know what I'm going to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. That I wanted to form a, a metal band called Barabbas. Yes, um, <laughs> which is clearly the ultimate metal band name. Um, yes. And then a few years later, I got really paranoid because I saw the film Twenty uh, Four Hour Party People, uh, and there's a scene where John Sim as Bernard Sumner laughs with the rest of the band about his mate uh, who came up with the worst band name ever Barabbas <laughs> uh, and aside from anything else I thought that's a bit rich in the mouth of John Sim uh, a man who spent years in a band called Magic Alex which <sighs> as band names go is is pitiful Nazareth though just reeks of it's just the archetypal early 70s rock band name isn't it It does smell it smells definitely do you remember there was a myth going around you could get high from smoking your own hair um i'm I'm getting that kind of yeah 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 there's a myth going around that if you rolled up your own hair and stuck it in a cigarette or a joint or whatever you'd get really high off it and like for some reason i hear the name nazareth and i'm thinking of burning hair (laughs) well we'd be fucked now wouldn't we simon (laughs) i just quite like the overall feel you get from from nazareth of you know, um, they know they're not Led Zeppelin. They also know that they're um, being left behind by history, but they're just having a good time. And um, this is, I mean, we're going to see some an example later on in the show of the new wave of British heavy metal. This is this is mm. the old wave of British. This is the old Wobbum. And um, yes. there's, there's something I don't know. There's just something quite likable about it. I would never have gone out and bought it or anything, but. Um, Nazareth were one of these bands, or just one of these names, actually, that you'd hear people mention. They say, oh, if, if you're into metal, have you heard of Nazareth? And everybody would sort of claim that they'd, they'd heard of them, but they couldn't name you a record by them. They're just one of these names. Mm. Um, you might occasionally see a track on a compilation album or something like that. So it's only through doing chart music and stuff like that that I've actually found out who the hell they were and what they sounded like. And, I, you know, yeah. I'm not going to say I love them or anything, but, you know, they seem all right. They seem all right, but it's 1979, isn't it? This has, this has the whiff of 1972 about it. Oh, but it. listen, right, It's yes, it's 1979, but this is something that becomes clear throughout this episode I think is that it's still very very much the 70s this is not the Aventies I'm sorry it isn't Um, I reckon Simon to say the Aventies yes I don't think anything is the Aventies but this definitely isn't Um, 
I no. What, what I'm trying to say is, I think you could trace the development of 1979 on an almost week by week basis and spot right. when it's actually starting, when the 80s are actually starting to happen. And I still contend yeah. that um, it's July um, when Two Way Army are number one on top of the pops with our friends Electric is when the 80s truly begin and obviously in in may of that year you had thatcher getting elected but this is february there's still strikes going on there's nothing really on this episode that's particularly futuristic and it just to me it feels like the endless 70s not the 70s it's the it's the never-ending 70s and i think we're still very much in it and uh, at, at this point and i think that nazareth still kind of have a place in it, even though they probably sense that the game is going to be up pretty soon. Mm. This particular Top of the Pops does have a lot of records on that seem strangely out of time and uh, uh, strangely behind their time. I'll tell you what I will say about Nazareth, though. Uh, This record has got one great verse in it, lyrically, um, which goes, Talking to my lover, she was out. It was Independence Day. Don't be nervous, you can hold me tight. Someone turn the light out on the stairs. Now, if you can't write great lyrics, write startling non sequiturs. <laughs> that would be my advice to any songwriter because it, it's the next best thing. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you what, everything that makes hair metal and 80s LA FM radio hard rock sound worse than it should, it's all here, right? It's no surprise to me that people like Guns N' Roses all love Nazareth. Because if you want to know what makes Guns yeah. N' Roses less than brilliant or so much less brilliant than they could have been, uh, listen to some Nazareth. Because they don't sound that alike, but if you drew a Venn diagram of their respective sounds, everything in the overlap would be the trouble. Anything else to say about this song? I'm going to go, Odesal. Odesal's got a digital watch on, Ooh. which is very impressive for 1979. Did, did you ever have a digital watch, Chad? Yeah, um, one of the first ones I got played the Can Can, and I got that because I was into bad manners, <laughs> and I was so excited <laughs> to have a little tinny version of the Can Can on my wrist. Yeah, that's better than me. Mine played the Yellow Rose of Texas. Yeah, I've got to say that in 1979, probably around this time, I had the first digital watch at my school. I was the fucking king of the playground that morning. Yeah, it was one of those where you had to press the button for the display to come up. It was really basic. And after about an hour of everyone in the whole school, including the teachers, coming up to me and saying, what's the timer, what's the timer, what's the timer, battery went out. <laughs> I mean, I've started collecting those now because I'm one of those I'm, I'm one of those retro wankers, you know. But I do love a proper old school chunky digital watch where you press it and the, and the letters shine up red. Love it. Nothing else on it, no calculator, no bad manners songs, just purely the display. The following week, May the Sunshine entered the top 40 at number 36 and would eventually get to number 22. The follow-up, Star, would only get to number 54 in July of this year and they would never trouble the charts again. However, they continued as a working band were followed around by a pre-famed Guns N' Roses and turned down an invitation to play at Axel Rose's wedding. Dynamic new single from Nazareth, that's May the Sunshine. Five years ago, The Three Degrees had a number one record. Now they're trying to make it two with their new single, A Woman in Love.
covered the three degrees in chart music 6 and 13 so we'll just say that this is the follow up to giving up giving in which got to number 12 of november of 1978 and it's up this week from number five to number three well chaps here we are again who'd have thought that we'd be the number one podcast authority (laughs) in the world on the fucking three degrees so we have to talk about prince charles again Used oh, shall we? Well, yeah, because now it's topical again, isn't it? Because yeah. she could have been the Meghan Markle of her day. Yes, she really Since could. the last time we talked about this. Yeah, I mean, I, and this song really is its a soul version of Stand By Your Man, isn't it? Well, it is a country song, isn't it? It was um, originally yeah. by Twiggy, I believe. Twiggy recorded a ver- really? yeah, Twiggy recorded this before the Three Degrees, and it was written by Dominic Bugatti and Frank uh, Musker, who were Bugatti and Musker songwriting team who worked for all kinds of really middle of the road people like John Waite, and they they did Too Much Love Will Kill You with Queen and all kinds of sort of M O R things like right. that. So so yeah, this is a country song, not a soul song, isn't it? Definitely. Mm. She's basically saying, you know, I'll be loyal to you even when you say something stupid about architecture or have a go at body popping in public, <laughs> or get recorded telling you knock off that you want to be shoved up a fanny when it's the time of the month. <laughs> I'll stand by you. Because a woman in love will understand. Will understand. I, mm. I like how they've got these cherry red sequined frocks that have got big monster bites out of the sides as if they've been savaged yes. by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And um, Very fetching. I also like how, how the one on the left, um, on well, on Sheila Ferguson's right, looks like she's really kind of blissed out on Valium and gin, which ironically describes the state of every single person who bought this record. (laughs) It's a real Housewives record, isn't it? Yeah, we've been pleasantly surprised by Three Degrees records in the past, but they were sort of, they they were the exceptions, and this is really what they did, and this is what we Mm. remember them for, Mm. and this is why we don't speak of them in the same breath as other superficially similar vocal groups who were mm. clearly superior and far more interesting uh i mean this is it's strange to think that this was number three because it's hard yeah. to see who's buying it obviously adults uh, but i mean it's adult orientated but it's not really divorce pop it's not granny bait and it's not no. any kind of hip you know i mean i always thought of the three degrees as a group who made their money in cabaret and like sit down night spots and it's weird to think of them having smash hit singles with unfunky unmemorable ballads i mean this is pure mor and there isn't anything interesting happening in it good or bad so like near the end when she does that big uh, almighty vocal explosion uh, mm. The song doesn't deserve it, so it really makes you jump. It seems really out of place. Mm. The most interesting thing about this clip is their is their dresses, which, as well as Simon says, looking like they've been attacked by a Tyrannosaurus Rex, are also uh, encrusted in these sparkly fake jewels, which, yes. under the studio lights and in the semi-soft focus that they're filmed in, uh, explode like a like a box of fireworks. Mm. Um, and it means watching this clip, it's like being shot at by a platoon of stormtroopers. <laughs> it's just these red and green flashes in your face. It's like you want to do the sound effects, like zoom, zoom. It's really <laughs> distracting. To it's like you're trying to listen to an unremarkable 
middle of the road ballad while being blasted in the face in the future. They're kind of like on the stage, but they're on their own. They're not surrounded by any of the kids who uh, who would get in the yeah. way and take away from the adult sophistication that's being presented to us. Mm. Yeah, there's no audience there. You don't want no fucking chip pan headed oiks picking the nose and looking at the camera or mucking about. It's very obviously there's no audience. And at the end, it cuts from the Three Degrees uh, filmed in an empty studio to Mike Reed's link into the next record, which I think is recorded in the same empty studio at a different time. And they try and cover the join with a wash of pre-recorded applause from a different time. It's, yeah, it's it's not thrilling TV. Uh, Yeah, and they the way they're filmed it there's this strange color cast giving them purple hair um on that weird bbc set that's like half art deco and half star wars it's just yeah <laughs> it's really dreary this looks like a really thankless task being the second and third degree as well doesn't it <laughs> they're like the musical yeah. version of the the shirtless blokes rowing in the galley the, the, the two kens you mean yeah yeah the two they're plugging away plugging away in the background uh without being able to stop and scratch themselves or anything just yeah. I mean, this is this is what was understood as class isn't it is a sort of yes. unnatural self-restraint yeah, very much so yeah so the following week woman in love stayed at number three and would stay there for another week before dropping down the follow-up the runner got to number 10 in april of this year and the last Prince Charles had to make do with Lady Diana a couple of years later. You fucked up, Charles. <laughs> Let us all down. Proving up by degrees is the three degrees at number three this week. And one of the best new singles... Second highest new entry this week, The Members and The Sound of the Suburbs. Reed, standing by a big gong, introduces one of the best new singles of the moment, in his opinion, Sound of the Suburbs, by the members. Formed in Camblay in 1976 by an insurance salesman called Nick Lightowlers, who changed his name to Nicky Tesco, the members did the London pub circuit and donated a song to the first LP released by Beggar's Banquet, the punk compilation Streets. In 1978, they signed a one-shot deal with Stiff Records for their debut single Solitary Confinement, which failed to chart. This is the follow-up, the first single on Virgin Records, and it's a new entry at number 38. First chance we get to have a look at Mike Reed's PVC trousers. Yeah, he's man-spreading like a bastard there, isn't he? He is, isn't he's, he? He's, he's, he's Tory party conference standing, yes, isn't he? Yes, definitely, yeah. It's, it's Gideon Osborne, it's Theresa May, Manchester, two, three years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Smash Hits used to have a saying that Toya was in reception. And what they meant by yes. that was that if someone had dropped out of being on the front cover and they desperately needed somebody at short notice, Toya would always say yes. She was always there, mm. always readily accessible. Top of the pops, I reckon, around this time, the members are always in reception. 
because yeah. they seem to appear on top of the pops far more often than their their stature uh, would uh, really justify. Um, mm. And maybe that's just a, a false impression I've got from watching BBC Four reruns. You know, the the story of 1979 or whatever it, whatever it was. Yeah. But they yeah they they seem to have appeared on TOTP an awful lot. Um, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to get in trouble for this because I, I kind of know one of them. Uh, one, Ooh. Yeah, one of them's a friend of a friend. Um, uh, Which one? Uh, his name's JC, uh, JC Carroll, um, and uh, he's a guitarist. And um, he's, yeah, I've, I've, I've been drinking in his company with, with sort of mutual friends. Uh, but Ooh. no, I, I, don't, I don't like him. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, <gasps> I, I think this is just awful this is wrong it's weird that it's become a, um, a kind of oh kind of iconic staple of punk compilations and punk kind of uh, retrospectives probably because of the title mm. just it's got this kind of definitive yeah. title sound of the suburbs but it's a great compilation lp title yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it but but it is it is shy and and it's it's 1979 and they're still yeah the, the weird thing is you look at the state of them they don't look like the kids i was shocked to find that jc was actually 23 uh when this was filmed um i don't know how old the, other, the others were but they all look a lot older uh, they are not the kids um and uh there's there's actually ironically there is a punk kid in the audience isn't there with a, a yellow and blue yeah. stripe dyed into his hair i i try yes. to figure out if it's leeds united or cardiff city or what um, you know that the floor manager's gone, oh, look, 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 there's one of them punk kids, right? Get him in the yeah, front, yeah, yeah. get him in the front, shoot the shot over his head. But I think it's 1979 and we're the real dregs of punk here and we've reached a stage where all punk means is being a bit disrespectful in your manner and and mm. singing in estuarine vowels. So it basically means sounding a bit cockney. That's what punk has become now. Mm. But Simon, I remember in a previous chart music, you you were saying that this was the era where punk was bigger than uh, than it was before. You know, we were only finally broken through to uh, to people like us on the on the estates. Well, it it did. Um, there was a kind of delayed reaction. You know, certainly in in Wales, it, it didn't yeah. really break until seventy eight. And I, I'm struggling to justify uh, my reasons for not liking this and liking Sham 69, because I did like Sham 69. There's not a lot of difference between the two, really, when you get down to it. They're both kind of suburban, um, you know, out, outskirts of London takes on, on punk. And, you know, there's there's not a lot of subtlety or, or inventiveness to either. Mm. But, yeah, mm. I don't know. I just... There's just something so on the nose about it. The way the guy shouts, you know, something about what the kids want now is anarchy, as if, you know, yeah. tying themselves in. Hey, remember Sex Pistols three years ago? We're a bit like that. Um, yeah. But we're also kind of standing back from it and making a comment on it or something. Mm. It's a bit late for this, isn't it? That's the, that is the thing. It's. Uh, but the funny thing is, a lot of other members' records, even if they're not that good, are less straight and silly than this right like the follow-up uh offshore banking business is a million times better than this and the top of the pops performance of that is quite something as well so yeah i'm not not 100 sure why they were impersonating the clash this closely in 1979 um what you can say is nikki tesco is obviously one of the great pop stage names although it's questionable whether it's better than Nicholas Lightowlers. Um, but he has that air of 
somehow being not a young man of the late 1970s. Yeah, there's something in his face and build and the way he wears his hat. Um, he seems more like... A, yeah, it's, a, it says a bit jazz club, isn't it? Yeah, he seems more like a, a, a displaced 35-year-old from the Dark Ages or a, or a, an unfortunate mid-Victorian baby in a sepia photograph. Um, but I like the way he's a poor fit as a lead singer and he's so naturally awkward um, and sort of turns that into the point. I mean, that's I do miss that in bands, that now you just get contrived awkwardness and, and false cool. Mm. Blur doing this with a bit more musical proficiency and a, an ironic upper-middle-class sneer became the sound of 1994, which displeased me hugely at the time because aside from anything else uh one thing you can say for this record is that it's about boredom and it's about a form of boredom which had ceased to exist by 1994 and was never experienced by rich kids anyway um yeah yeah the retreads of this miss the point and and sort of reveal a deeper boredom which is and a contagious boredom which is the boredom of having no ideas. Yeah. I mean, the one thing about this is we're going to see an example of a London punk band and this, an example of a non-London punk band. And you can see the difference straight away, can't you? This lot look like they've been loaded into a cannon and fired through a charity shop, haven't they? (laughs) I mean, Nicky Tesco's got some kind of Jackson Pollock suit on, but everyone else is wearing manky jumpers and T-shirts and lots of little badges... That, that that can be quite charming though, like when the undertones did it. Definitely, yeah, know, that was all yeah, right. The undertones were the absolute, you know, template for that. The guitarist singing backing vocals. I don't know if it's Simon's mate or not. Is on poor terms spatially with the microphone, which was a big thing with bands of this period. It's like he can't see it. It's like he doesn't know where it is, and he's just moving his head around, thinking, "Well, it's around here somewhere." That's quite appealing. And uh, so, what about the bit where he flips it over? Oh, what flips his guitar over? Yeah, he flips his guitar over, and um, on the on the back in uh, sort of silver glitter paint, it says "That's right," and it's just to coincide with the bit where he goes "That's right" in in really kind of weak backing vocals. Yeah, the the, I mean, the, the, the guitarist it, out of Bon Jovi did that as well, but on the back of his guitar, it said "Tits." <laughs> ah. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's not exactly this machine kills fascists, is it? Nor is it Gordon is a cunt, unfortunately. <laughs> and also, they, they zoom in, they zoom in on his scratch plate, and he's got a sexy lady in a bikini cut, cut yes. out of a newspaper stuck on there. Yes. <laughs> I think the best thing about this record, though, is the way that it so perfectly captures a particular cartoon version of late seventies Britishness. Which, looking back, it's like, oh yeah, late seventies. It's you know. Dad's washing his car and all this sort of stuff, but that's actually the very thing it's yeah. trying to do, which is quite interesting. And you know, although it's not exactly in utero, it's not whimsical either. It's not a gag, and it's not a dress up. They do sort of mean it. And the only problem with the, mm. that, you know, there's that really loose, shouty climax to this record. Uh, well, all the stuff that makes that yeah. authentically exciting is the stuff that's stolen directly from the Clash. And the rest is a bit shabby because it's them. Um, it's weird, though. You couldn't make a record like this now because it's not 21st century to address disaffected youth 
in terms that the rest of the country can understand, right? There's a sort of universalism mm-hmm. to this record. Like, you know, if your parents hear it, they get it. They understand what's being said. They just don't like it, you know. Whereas now, records made by and for, you know, bored kids from the suburbs um, are completely incomprehensible to everyone else. I mean, most of them are completely incomprehensible to me, even though I like them, you know. And... That's probably how it should be. I mean, we talk about punk breaking through at schools and things like that. Um, we don't see much punkishness going on in the audience in, in this Top of the Pops, do we? I mean, there's that one lad with the, with the dyed hair. But the only other one I noticed was that there was one lad at the front and he really wants to pogo, but he's a bit too scared to. So he just shakes a bit as if he's trying to get a trapped fart out. <laughs> So, the following week, Sound of the Suburbs jumped 14 places to number 23 and would eventually get to number 12. The follow-up, Offshore Banking Business, would get to number 31 in April of this year, the last time they got to spray their musk upon the hit parade. And they split up for the first time in 1983. The suburbs, the only record around in Read points out that Sand of the Suburbs is available on transparent vinyl, which was a huge deal back then, wasn't it? Yeah, I love things like that. I got several records by people like Squeeze just because they're on see-through vinyl, you know? Yeah. Very exciting. Of course, this is the time when Smash It's used to mention when the singles were coloured or had picture sleeves on the reviews page. And it became something that was very tied in with punk and very tied in with a new wave to have either see-through vinyl or kind of lurid green or pink sort of vomit inducing colours it's it's, it's a very punk thing wasn't it yeah and when they were shaped it was even better wasn't it yeah although that said ELO did it and they're probably the least punk band imaginable but yeah I remember in my local record shop they had a a, a shaped picture disc of a Barry Manilow record Um, and it was Barry Manilow's profile um, <laughs> like they'd only done it to encourage the obvious joke that yeah. as it went round on the turntable, his nose would shear off the stylus, and you know. Yeah, I remember there was um, uh, one of it's probably my best friend's girl by the cars in the shape of a car, and um, there was a, a folk rock band from Ireland called Horse Lips, whose uh, it was a, a, a shamrock shaped disc. I remember that one, yeah. The last one I can remember was, uh, oh, God, Down Under, Men at Work, uh, shaped like Australia. Ah. They sounded like crap as well, those, like picture discs and stuff. They, they, the actual sound of the records is abominable. Yeah, I've got one of Prince, Kiss, and it's basically his body is him. Um, and, yeah, it's just a piece of shit, you know, to get a better sound off an iPhone 1. Um And, uh, oh, God, what's the other one? Oh, King Kurt, Destination Zululand, this kind of cartoon Tasmanian devil type thing uh, at least they didn't do one for the LP Big Cock <laughs> and I remember Madness always put out um, yeah Madness always put out uh, picture discs 
and I was a bit of an obsessive collector of of their stuff. And I remember um, going down to um, the local record shop, Christopher's, where I got all my records, and um, picking up the copy of Driving In My Car that I'd ordered and um, strapping it to uh, the the pannier thing on the back of my bicycle and then putting my lunch putting my lunch on top of it, which is a bag of chips fresh from the chip shop. And of course, <laughs> by the time I got home, it was shaped like one of those novelty ashtrays. And I, I had the nerve, I had the nerve to go back to Christopher's and complain and say, sorry, this record you give me is out of shape. <laughs> and it smells yeah. of vinegar. <laughs> And because I'm such a regular customer, you let me get away with it. Anyway, Reed pivots from talking about something transparent to something that's reflective. It's Mirrors by Sally Oldfield. Oh, did you see what he did then? It's very clever because this is reflective in two senses as well, isn't it? Yes, yes. Now, he'd obviously put a bit of work into it. And I don't know if that's, if that's tragic or kind of quite nice. But yeah, you know, I don't know. At least he's not just... I suppose he starts the show with all that cliché stuff that Taylor mentioned about... What was it again he says yeah, at the start? Welcome to another star-studded episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah, yeah. So that's all kind of, you know, bog-standard, off-the-script off stuff. But, um, yeah, yeah, at least at least he's put a bit of thought into these absolutely cringeworthy puns. Is this his first Top of the Pops, do we know? His first Top of the Pops was in early November 1978. Yeah, if it is, that makes a lot of sense because it's like, I remember... TV database is telling me that this is his fourth Top of the Pops. Yeah. No, it must be. It's. I mean, I remember it's like when you we were music writers, you know, on the weeklies, your first review would be packed with great lines. Like, the one, yeah. it's like, it's my first review. You'd make sure it was brilliant. You'd spend hours on it, making sure it was brilliant. And then about your fifth review, you'd do it in 20 minutes and it would be dreadful. <laughs> Just because you suddenly realised you had to uh, work to tight deadlines and the novelty had worn off. Yeah. So, born in Dublin in 1947, Sally Oldfield started her music career in 1968 when she recorded some demos overseen by Mick Jagger and assisted by her younger brother, Mike Oldfield. After the two of them formed the folk duo, the Sally Ange, she provided backing vocals on his debut LP, Tubular Bells, in 1973. This is the first single from her debut LP, Waterbearer, and it's up this week from number 23 to number 19. Now, nah, chaps, you see, we're seeing all these new wave acts around this time, particularly the female ones trying to be a bit weird and different, but this is fucking mental, isn't it? <laughs> Partly because it's not trying to be weird and different. Um... That's why it's so authentically strange. Basically, it's, uh, it's these women wearing dresses that make them look like they're about to be burnt by Matthew Hopkins. Um, or, <laughs> or that they're about to go in for an operation. Um, no, wait, what it looks like, it's like they're in a fictional convent and they've all hopped out of bed in these drab nighties and bare feet to do this song and dance routine in the dormitory. It's, it's got to be said that Oldfield and her backing singers are, are in nighties, but not the naughty ones that you could buy for £2.99 and a couple of vouchers out the sun. <laughs> My immediate impression was that it was like the Bronte sisters having a go at imitating Martha and the Vandellas and they've, they've all got out of bed for a bit of a midnight sing. Yeah, and it's the, the, the vibe of this clip is... 50% stars on Sunday and 50% blood on Satan's claw. There's a, 
it's it because this is a funny week because there aren't that many really good records on this top of the pops, but there aren't that many really terrible records either. What you get is a lot of peculiar things which aren't that representative of the period, but are good examples of particular styles and subgenres. Now, this is a bit of an exception because it's quite difficult to pin down. Um, it's sort of folky, but it's not. It's like, I mean, I love properly eerie folk stuff and even some of the properly eerie hippie folk stuff. But there's a sort of, there's also a kind of neat jazziness to this record, which is like an exorcism uh, and all the old ghosts of merry old England or merry old Ireland are just... Uh, vanish and you're, what you're left with is a uh, just what meets the ear which is a kind of radio to suburbanism and uh prosaicism yeah uh, it's all very music and movement in the assembly room in your vest precisely. and pants isn't it well it takes me back there was a lot of this kind of thing around when i was at primary school actually like women with perms in shapeless smocks singing la 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 with a creepy kind of religiosity sort of on the edge of sanity you know what I mean? To me, right, um, she looks like she's been let out of the loony bin in Girl Interrupted. Um, but also, she looks a bit like Madame Peignoir from Faulty Towers. So <laughs> I, I, I keep expecting her to, you know, pin John Cleese to the light switch and say, oh, Basil, you're very naughty and this kind of stuff. Um, but um, the this i i quite like this record i gotta be honest it's yeah a, okay i admit me too <laughs> do you know what it's what it is it's the orinoco flow of its day with 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 added weird kind of aloha hawaii kind of business in the chorus yeah. i don't know what that hawaiian stuff is but yeah it's, keely it's, aloha roughly translated from hawaiian is hello flower all right which makes it sound a bit like charlie williams doesn't it Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah yeah so it's kind of like ambient folk pop and it, I, I group it together in my mind with um, I don't know if you know this uh, also from the seventies a folk rock hit Northern Lights by Renaissance. Yeah, it's, it's it's got that kind of feel to it, I think, and it's and the theme tune to the Paper Lads. Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the people who live by the time. All right, okay, and um, yeah, it's it's um, a bit kind of idyllic and utopian, and it just yeah, I mean. Uh, as as it you know it it does what it says on the tin you know mirrors and all that it it does sound quite kind of sparkly and I I do like that about it, but um, the other thing about the performance other than her bizarre outfit is um, the pampas grass on the stage <laughs> and we all know what that meant don't we? No, go on. Well, I'm apparently you know supposedly uh, leaving a massive vase of pampas flowers outside your front door. Um, on your patio meant that you're a swinger and you're inviting other swingers to come round. Oh, shit. And, um, as My mum's just got some of that <laughs> in. This happened to Mariella Frostrup a few years ago. <laughs> there was... There was it was amazing. If you look this up, if you just Google Mariella Frostrup Pampas Grass, it was this amazing story where she, she'd, like, um, supposedly innocently left two massive vases full of pampas grass um, on the balcony uh, outside her, her flat in London... And all kinds of weirdos kept coming around knocking because they were taking it as a signal. So it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know if... Uh, so like, it's like the middle-class version of the Omo packet in the window. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, what was that? That was a military thing, one, the Omo packet. It's like, on you know, sort of um, in army towns. Old man out. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if your husband was away, 
um, you know, fighting a war, you'd stick your homo in the window. Yeah. I mean, you know, not that for one moment we're suggesting that, that Sally Oldfield was into all that, but, you know, hey, it was the 70s, free love, who yeah, knows? you know, come in, have a bit, bit of the old sex to me brother's album. <laughs> she does look a lot like her brother in a curly wig, it has to be said. <laughs> Our old editor, Alan Jones, actually had a book out called Can't Stand Up For Falling Down, and it's all his old uh, rock and roll war stories. And in there, uh, he meets Mike Oldfield. Um, he's very over-familiar with Jonesy, is uh, Mr Oldfield. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, I, th- I think um, he's kind of one of these people... I think he was into, um, how do you pronounce it, exegesis? This weird kind of um, self-help cult that, um, you know, it, it, it basically... The people, people who, they, they invade your personal space and they get very intense with you and, and look you deep in the eye and try and make some kind of connection with you and all this kind of stuff. And um, that's what Mike Oldfield was into. Um, for all we know, uh, you know, if, if uh, Sally Oldfield was into the old Pampas grass routine, who knows? But it certainly um, sends the imagination racing when you look at the clip in hindsight. I think that if I was there, I would make my excuses and leave because there's something <laughs> a bit weird and crazy-eyed about her that puts you on your guard. Uh, and it's weird because the record is so sort of I mean it's an unusual record but it's not there's no whiff of madness in the record right which is what it's missing I mean folk and this is basically a folk record was the officially sanctioned music of childhood in the 70s uh, before being displaced by rap in the 80s but that's what um, provides that sort of queasy folk horror feel to all that ontology stuff you know and people of our, our generation but see this record isn't mysterious it's pretty uh but the arrangement is so sort of twee and soft-hearted you don't really feel anything but then you look at her and she genuinely does look like you know the ghost of someone who was burnt at the stake or something is but I sort of don't like it because the there's a sort of bogus spirituality to this record and there's this sub-pagan awe at the fact that the fucking sun comes up in the morning you know what I mean <laughs> it's like a sort of a su- suburban paganism I mean now I'm not one of those people who resists pop records which set themselves in a dream world or a fantasy land but fucking hell there's something about this the sort of this jolly sort of jolly animistic wooziness and you but you set that next to the relentless bleakness of 1979 and it makes me feel like there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
one of the members watching this. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't she singing about real life, real kids' problems? You know, you're watching it. You're longing for the for the Roman legion to come along to a wattle and daub settlement and <laughs> knock some fucking sense in <laughs> The lyrics, though, we are, we are, we are perfect. She's got a point. <laughs> but it has to be said that the kids are not feeling this. Nah. They're a bit scared. Well, rightly so. Bear in mind that the Wicker Man had come out about you know six years earlier, and they're probably wondering what's going to happen to him. Well, we're not that far <laughs> removed from the Exorcist here, so well, exactly, I don't know. Yeah, maybe the word that she's going to start masturbating with crucifix and start vomiting on them and and, and telling them that the mums suck cocks in hell. <laughs> To be fair, we don't see what happened after the cameras stopped rolling. Which, of course, her brother did the music for that. Yeah. It all links together. Yeah. The following week, Mirrors dropped five places to number 24, and it was her one and only appearance in the charts. Yeah, you notice she wasn't invited on Top of the Pops again, so, yeah. I, I guess it's people heard the record and assumed she would look like Britt Eklund, <laughs> or uh, or at least Britt Eklund's body double. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the other great picture disc of the era, isn't it? Britt Eklund, uh, we know Tom with a shiny ball over a fanner. Yeah, I had the gatefold. I, well, yeah, I didn't have the picture disc, but I had the gatefold of that. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doesn't open now. <laughs> <laughs> coming in at number 39 this week, a band for whom chart honours are long overdue, UFO. points out that the following band are making their first appearance on Top of the Pops and it's long overdue. It's UFO and Doctor Doctor. Formed in London as Hocus Pocus in 1969 after changing their name in tribute to the fabled hippie club where they were first discovered, UFO were a hard rock band who poached the German guitarist Michael Schenker from Scorpions in 1973. After Schenker went back to Scorpions in 1978, after musical differences with lead singer Phil Mogg, they had their first close scrape with the top 40 when Only You Can Rock Me got to number 50 in August of 1978. This is the follow-up and it's a new entry at number 39. Bloody hell, UFO, I didn't realise they'd been knocking about for so long, chaps. Well, that's it, I mean, because this is the new wave of British heavy metal, this is the Nwobum, even though they formed in the 60s, because it took that long for these bands to kind of percolate their way up. Um, and if you look at sort of chart positions, it's only now, sort of 78, 79, 80, that UFO and all these other bands actually start selling many records. Yeah, Judas Priest are having their first chart hit with Take On The World, which is currently at number 31. Yeah, and absolutely, Judas Priest are considered the, you know, the kind of first true new wave of British heavy metal band, or the first true heavy metal band, I think, because Priest were the first sort of metal or heavy metal band who had kind of ex- excised all um, elements of blues from it, and it's just purely metal. Um, but 
Phil Mogg is probably the most Nwobum name possible for lead singer, I think. Yes. Phil Mogg. What a brilliant... That's just such a metal name. Um, I, th- I think, uh, even though he'd left the band, I think Michael Schenker plays guitar on this track, but we don't see really? him. Really? Yeah, yeah, because uh, he co-wrote it, and he's on the album that it's from. But um, he, he'd left by the time this Top of the Pops performance happens because it was a sort of belated hit i think mm-hmm. I, I just quite like the whole the whole look of them uh i like this something that makes me feel quite sentimental nostalgic about that particular heavy metal look that combo of dark drainpipe jeans and white shoes or you know um white dunlop green flash and then um, good hair yeah but kind of flyaway hair they got real kind of just sort of flicks up at the ends not deliberately just because that's you know it's this it's a real kind of um castle donnington you know monsters of rock kind of look they've got going on there and um yeah i and it's got a bit of balls to it this record it really has you can see why even though it wasn't a massive hit it's become a bit of a um hard rock standard this this tune Mm. um the leopard jacket on the guitarist is is pretty fly as well I've, i've got to give him credit for that yeah you're talking you're talking about the rhythm guitarist the pleasantly named Paul Raymond. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. How brilliant would it be if it had been the Paul Raymond? <laughs> Just, yeah. I don't know, this is all right, but I mean, yeah, in this case, UFO stands for utterly fucking horrible. <laughs> something so sort of, you know, I don't know. It's Also, the, the Phil Mogg gets the words wrong to the first lines. You notice this, because he's miming. Uh, yeah, and he... he no, he no. Fucks up the first line. Like, how many times must he have sung it? It's so weird. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne famously always used to forget the first line of "Paranoid," which, which was the best line that Geezer Butler <laughs> ever wrote for him. Right, finish with my woman because she couldn't help me with my mind. Whereas Phil has to remember the less memorable "Doctor, Doctor, please, whoa, the mess I'm in." Uh, but you know, come on, it's not hard, is it? it's all right this but it's the way the the way that it sort of plods the way like the drums and bass plod through the verses and there's that weird lack of dynamics that you get with downer music you know plus the the bare bones sound of the band it's uh it's like a lot of stuff you sort of lose if you sit in the middle it's like you're better off going to extremes like if you're if you're going to play hard rock then either sound busy and dramatic and uh, expressive like The Who or Led Zeppelin or go minimal and channeled and sort of wall-eyed like Early Sabbath, you know. Because if you're in the middle, you end up with something like this, which is just a, a not very melodic pop song played too loud and too slow. I mean, it isn't bad, but it's this kind of this kind of heavy rock is a very forgiving genre like we were saying about disco last time it's a forgiving genre you put the basic elements together and you'll have something that at least sounds quite good uh but it's very plain it's a very plain record you know um david stubbs on his podcast is always talking about the darkness in the corners of the studio on the screen and that kind of stuff i think there's a similar thing in this performance where um we get a view from uh, behind the drum kit. Like it lasts quite a long time, and uh, um, 
from behind the drum kit you get to see the studio floor and how kind of tiny it all is there's only about there's only about three rows of kids and then beyond that this empty space and then there's another stage um across the way getting ready for whoever um so yeah i, I think that's that's some kind of metaphor itself for the the, uh, the 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 hollow void at the heart of pop this song though fucking hell talk about tying up the nhs with petty concerns <laughs> i mean the, the, there's probably a load of fucking non-ors in the waiting room dying of hypothermia and he's in there <laughs> banging on about his odd loving woman all night long it's yeah. it's it's not right is it no i mean for all we know the woman that's injured him is the same one out of uh you shook me all night long who's you know knocked uh knocked the fella from acdc out with uh, their american thighs because you know it's a hazardous business they can't you know put you in traction totally see what i would say is it's, i'd rather have this ufo than the previous ufo because if you look at um someone i know used to like them and they had all their 70s albums when you look at their 70s albums it's like the scorpions they've got uh, all those sort of nasty hypnosis type covers, you know, like sort of touched up photos of some grotesque tableau. You know, if you look at the covers of uh, what are their albums called, Fawcett and uh, No Heavy Petting, and I, I think Phenomenon, um, they've all got those covers that make your eyes go a bit nauseous, like uh, it's like advertising agency on LSD, you know. But it's, I'd much rather have this because it reminds me of being at school, you know, because we had mods and rockers, right? And the mods were the mod revivalists and the rockers were metal fans. Um, and it's it's kind of hilarious that the primitivist rockers had moved with the times and given up Gene Vincent and, and got, into, got into heavy rock, whereas the modernists had not. But... I, I like the rockers. They were a good laugh. And to this day, when you meet people who are into metal, they tend to be really good, likeable, non-judgmental people, you know, whereas, whereas mods are often wankers. But but I always but I always lent towards mods at the time because even then uh well even then I recognised this stuff as a as a bad porno vision of sex set to a widdly thump of of mediocre headbanging bullshit and I couldn't see myself in pissy denim um, and I, I always went the mod route because I came from you know the Midlands Merc and I wanted to escape it uh, not not wallow in it but you know I can listen to late 70s early 80s metal and you know apart from apart from Iron Maiden most of it lacks that sort of freaky alienated feel that made the older Heavy rocks are great, and more recent metal, more interesting. But I do feel like I really understand it, uh, and I did grow up around it. And when I see that that Donington look of a sort of a that kind of weird crouch with the guitar swaying backwards and forwards, uh, with the with yeah the tight jeans and white pumps, it's like oh, it, it takes me right back. Doctor Doctor by UFO or Doctor Doctor by the Thompson Twins? Christ, UFO. Uf UFO UFO yeah yeah if nothing else it's chunky. The following week, Doctor Doctor dropped two places to number forty-one, but would re-enter the charts the week after that when it got to number thirty-five, its highest position. The follow-up, Shoot Shoot, would only get to number forty-eight in April of this year, and their only other top forty hit, Young Blood got to number 36 in January of 1980, and they split up for the first time in 1983. 
The NHS advised that people suffering from hard-loving women all night long should consult their pharmacist or call 111 and speak to a fully trained advisor. Doctor UFO, is there really life on top of the box? Yes, is the answer. Billy Joel, my life. Are they enjoying it so far? Yeah? Read. Hanging over some congas does a pretty rubbish link into the next song before asking one of the congas if they're enjoying themselves. The song is My Life. The singer is Billy Joel, which makes him sound like one of Superman's uncles. We've done Billy Joel in chart musics 15 and 16, so we'll just say that this is his third chart single. It's a follow-up to Moving Out, Anthony's song, which got to number 35 in July of 1978. It's from the LP 52nd Street. It features Peter Cetera and Donny Dakers of Chicago on backing vocals. And it's up this week from number 15 to number 14. Now, chaps, before we go into this one, we need to point out that you can you can really tell that Reed's still bedding into television presenting, isn't he? Because, you know, we see him here nodding back to the gallery at the beginning and uh, he lets his presenting face drop into a, was that okay expression immediately after he's doing his thing here leaning across some bongos isn't he um which is kind of prefiguring one of the songs that's, that's coming up it turns out but um what what is what is this obsession with him and you know he can't keep away from he, them instruments can he he really does doesn't he yeah then he goes is there really life on top of the pops yes billy joel pronounces joel my life and it's oh god yeah yeah so the video is essentially Billy and his mates pricking about in the studio, cutting a tune and living that musician-y life. Simple blue-collar guys, although one of them's playing a clarinet. And you, you think, is he, is he going to take that home on the subway? Yeah, They're trying to do some kind of tricksy thing here, aren't they? Where you've got um, Billy Joel um, and his band um, walking into the, you know, into the booth in the studio. Sorry, into the control room in the studio, behind the glass, looking through the glass watching themselves and you know that's meant to fuck with our heads well but it, it just doesn't quite come off because they don't really commit to it no and it's i think i think that's the actual producer by the way phil ramone right um yeah produced produced the album i think that's actually him well the first thing that caught my eye was an overflowing fruit bowl on the mixing desk which was nice but kind of offset by what appeared to me to be a plastic cup of piss it might as well be 1972 because they all look like they're in an episode of quincy or ironsides or something like yeah, it looks like everything smells of cigarettes. You can just you can smell it through the screen. Mm. He's like he's like Sylvester Stallone's runty little brother or something, isn't he? What he looks like to me is like if Lou Reed had followed up his his makeup junky freak image with a sort of underachieving mature student image <laughs> or uh, Montgomery from Fame because it's that and it's that thing again that. Um, that particular kind of New York, like the the New York skyline in the opening titles of a warm American sitcom. Well, um, exactly. Yeah, somewhere out there through the through the grimy windows of that of that recording studio, Dean Friedman is brushing his teeth, and uh, <laughs> Cagney and Lacey are earning their badges. 
and uh, the same wallet has changed hands six times this afternoon. It's got this same feel to it as um, I remember on a previous episode we talked about um, it's still rock and roll to me, where he's this kind of unfathomably angry little man and, and you wonder what he's so angry about. I mean, the lyrics to this, the delivery is more furious than the lyrics warrant, put it that way. And I, I just, I don't get it. It's a stroppy little man with his piano. And also, oh, by the way, um, there's the bit uh, where it goes, I never said you had to offer me a second chance. I never said I was a victim of circumstance. That bit of the song, total 10cc ripoff. Did you think that? Well, I'll tell you the most shocking thing about this record. I bought it. No. I know. <laughs> I know. As a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old boy bought this fucking record, one of the first records I ever bought, and I'm looking back now, I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, and I don't know why. Do you think it spoke to you in your life at that time that you felt... You, <sighs> well... You needed, you needed some kind of... Uh, you need some kind of anthem of, of self-determination to, to make make you feel centred. Well, yeah, maybe so. I mean, I mean maybe it was because I, I felt I was becoming independent and, uh, you know, I could go into town on my own. Uh, I, I could make my own choices. I could make toast toppers when my mum was at bingo. Yeah. Yeah, looking back on it now, I think it was the line, I don't need you to tell me it's time to go home, that that really sold the record to me. Because that's how I felt when my mum was screaming my name at the top of the street when I was playing football. (laughs) The weirdest bit is the verse, they will tell you you can't sleep alone in a strange place. Then they'll tell you you can't sleep with somebody else. Ah, but sooner or later you'll sleep in your own space. Either way, it's okay. You wake up with yourself, which, oh, that last bit's meant to be really deep, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you wake up yourself. But, I mean, who are they? Who are the they? Who in, <laughs> who are the they who are telling the probably 30-year-old or something, Billy Joel, in, in late 70s New York, that he can't sleep with who he wants to sleep with? This 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 goes against everything we know about New York I mean, in that, that era. The bit that gets me about this song is his mate in the first verse. He's, he claims to be tired of living the American way. So he goes to Los Angeles, which is uh, it's a bit fucking thick, isn't it? Really, it's like it's like me saying, "Oh God, I hate England. Uh, I think I'm gonna fuck off to Skegness." Well, yeah. The funniest thing about this record is the disco bass line as well, because this is not a disco record, and they put this disco bass line on it, which seems so forced and such an obvious bit of radio bait. But if you took that away, the rest of the song would collapse because that's what keeps it functioning and stops it fading completely into sort of gutless introspection. I mean, this is this is an Elton John song in all but composer credit. And when you're listening to post-Elton John music, something has gone badly wrong in your life. And I fucking bought this. <laughs> you know, everyone bangs on about the first record they bought. You know, it's one of the key milestones in our in our lives. But, you know, I'm of the opinion that it's far more interesting to find out about the records that we buy at the beginning of our lives as record consumers uh, yeah. that we look back on and, and think, why, why the fuck did I buy that? So, chaps, what's yours? Yeah, the first single I bought... Well, the first serious single I bought, because the first single I actually bought was Nevermind the Presents by the Baron Knights. <laughs> But it doesn't count because it's comedy. Uh, the first actual record I bought was Ebony and Ivory. Um, yeah, I'd love to say it was uh, something cool, but it wasn't. Um, but, I mean, the only get out is it's because I like the Beatles. And it was like, oh, Paul McCartney's got a new single out. I'll go and buy it. Um, and But I think at that age, I sort of couldn't really tell if it was good or bad. You know what I mean? 
I mean, the first record I bought, we've talked about this before, was Gary Glitter, I'm the Leader of the Gang, I Am. But around this time, when I was starting to properly collect records, it was weird because, yeah, on the one hand, I'd be buying things like Boomtown Rats and Blondie and stuff, and then later on, you know, Madness and the Specials and stuff that had a bit of a sort of punky edge to it. But at the same time, I would sort of quietly buy sort of soft adult ballads like um, Reunited by Peaches and Herb or Together We Are Beautiful by Fern Kinney and um, yeah yeah I did I just yeah I bought them and I, I it kind of I think I went through a phase actually of feeling that I had to buy every number one record uh, so some of them of I course, can justify with yeah. that so, so for example I bought Three Times a Lady by the Commodores because it was number one um, so that that partly explains it, but even so, yeah, I think most of us went through a phase of buying the number one single. But but <laughs> yeah, what yeah, single yeah. was it, Simon, that broke your streak? I think I think maybe um, Kenny Rogers' "Cow of the County" might have broken me. That might be the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the other thing about being that age and having so few records in your collection is is that you just you just rinse them to death, don't you? I mean, absolutely. Fucking hell! I, I mean, I remember playing the B side mm. of "Hit Me with Your Rhythm Stick" far more than I did the A side, um, probably because it was called there ain't half been some clever bastards <laughs> there ain't half been some tony bastables no just one tony bastable but you're right about doing anything you could to get your money's worth out of these purchases you made so the b-sides yeah i mean the um, three times a lady by the commodores i can still remember the b-side was a funk track called can't let you tease me and it's an absolute banger and you know to this day, I value that a lot more than three times a lady, to be honest. Oh, and the other thing was, was that the record player in our house, uh, it went to 33 and a third, 45, 78 and 16. Oh, so there was fun to be had with Billy Joel. Yeah, from that exactly. point of view. <laughs> yeah, you get me. And in those days, and at that age, it genuinely was funny because, you know, we were, it was simpler times and we were amused by simple things. It's like there's that clip of um, uh, Question of Sport where uh, David Coleman plays a, a clip, I think it's, it's two rugby players, and they, they play the video back and forwards, back and forwards, sort of two seconds um, to the sound of some classical music. And the, the panellists are just falling about laughing at the idea that you can rewind tape and make people look like they're doing ballet or something. Yeah, yeah. on the ball used to do that in the early 70s. They, uh, with the, they used to right, call it yeah, the yeah, dancing yeah. footballers. Yeah, it was on all the time. And it wasn't even new then because um, they did Hitler doing the Lambeth Walk, didn't they? You know what I mean? That's where it all comes from. I mean, that was brand new. But, yeah, 1970s, oh, look, it's a, a referee tripping over something. And then, oh, he stood up again. Oh, he's tripped over again. Oh, he stood up again. <laughs> yeah, fuck off. Oh, well, most definitely, yeah. And I'll tell you what, Boney M sound fucking satanic at 16 RPM. I can imagine that getting played in in Berghain now in Berlin, you know. <laughs> my, my, my mate had um, passed the duchy by Musical Youth. And the funny thing about that single is if you play that at 33 RPM, it sounds like a good reggae record. <laughs> so the following week, my life jumped up two places to number 12, where it stayed for two weeks before dropping down the chart. The follow-up, Until the Night, only got to number 50, and he'd have to wait until August of 1980 for it's still rock and roll to me to put him back in the top 40. My Life became the theme tune to the early 80s American sitcom Bosom Buddies, where Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari played two ad men who dressed up as women at home wow. in order to live in the one flat that they could afford to <laughs> in an all-female block. Oh, oh, what larks there must have been. Yeah, if I was gonna say, if a, but it was shit. If a sitcom like that never appeared at six in the evening on BBC Two on a Tuesday night, yeah, 
worse than Rhoda. this week for Joel and my life and now to put you in the holiday mood straight out of the holiday brochure we have a nice group over there come on then kiss me slowly kiss me slowly oh slower 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 right it's too mad sound Wearing a Kiss Me Quick hat and flanked by two ladies, introduces the next band and is awkwardly kissed on the cheek by both of them. Before we go into that song, Reed's uh, performance with, with the ladies, it's, it is a bit awkward, isn't it? And it brings it home to you that he's been solo up until now. Uh, yes. You know, he's not doing that traditional 1970s thing of being flanked by you know, two or four or six girls. Cramming them into his face. Yeah, but but now he's he's making up for it and he makes them kiss him in uh, this weird kind of sex pest way. And then he starts going... It's, well, it's, it's more of an uncle kind of way, isn't it? Oh, come on, give your uncle a kiss. Well, you say that, but I don't know uh, how many uncles would go, oh, slower, slower at the end. Well, yeah, that, that's very true, actually, yes, yes. Meanwhile... Certainly not me. Meanwhile, Blue Tulip is at home going absolutely mental, putting her foot through the telly, probably. But the band are Two Man Sound and the song is Ketal America. Formed in Belgium in the early 70s, Two Man Sound were a pop trio that went all samba disco and had a European hit in 1976 with Charlie Brown. This is their first UK hit and has been remixed by a British DJ called Pete Waterman and it's up from number 62 to number 51. Well, here come the Belgians as... uh, as somebody else who you don't see on telly anymore used to say. Um, whenever we do one of these episodes, there's always one song on the list that I've never heard of when I'm when I'm scanning yeah. down the names. Um, yeah. But then when I played it, and as soon as I saw the Harmar superstar meets Hair Bear Bunch looking guy in a in oh, a caftan yeah, exactly. going mental behind the bongos, I real and we'll come to him in a minute. I realised what's oh, yes. I realised what this is. Right, so Lou Deprick, the brilliant name Lou Deprick, yes, is who yes. he is. He is the man who wrote and even sang on Saplan Pour Moi by Plastic yes, Bertrand. He is. Um, yes, he is. Which is an amazing bit of pop history that like, um, none of Plastic Bertrand's hits or none of his hit were, were sung by him. Um, Making him the Belgian Alvin Stardust. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But what what a weird career in the late seventies for Lou Deprick yeah. to have been responsible for Saplan Pour Moi, which is a brilliant record, by the way. Yes, it is. And yes. also for this, which, if nothing else, is a brilliant Top of the Pops performance. Isn't it? Just where do we where do we start on this one? Uh, let's, let's let's start with Mister Deprick. He's uh, he's, a, he's like a sailor on one leg with a saucy tash yeah. and a, a a look of shall we say simple wonder yes. on his face. And teeth so gappy that it looks, as they say, like his tongue is in jail. Um, <laughs> and he's, and then there's that that massive unshaven bollock on springs playing congas. He's look who looks like a, an enchanted Ron Jeremy. Yes, like, yes, whirring away with a giant key sticking out of his back. 
Ooh, ooh, Mr. Peevely. Right, th- th- this is where I got confused, obviously, because I thought the Ron Jeremy guy, in other words, the Harmar Superstar guy, was Luda Prick. You're saying Luda Prick is the sailor guy. Yes. Right, so the guy, right, the guy on the bongos with the big hair, he's an absolute yes. fucking legend. So, do, so what's, what's his name? He's Ivan Lacombe. He's not Luda Prick. We've got to well, point out that Ivan Lacombe is, uh, according to Wikipedia, is often known by the nickname Pipu. Which makes it even funnier. Because <laughs> he is amazing. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. One of the greatest performers in Top of the Pops history. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the hair bear bunch comparison was, was not far from my mind. He's really having it. He's going for it. He's just... Yeah. He's, he's having more fun than anyone in continental Europe at that time. Yeah, yeah, and he and he keeps that up as well because have you have you seen the video? Uh, there's a video clip on YouTube of them performing Charlie Brown, which is a, an extremely nondescript really? record, but they're playing it on a on a Belgian TV entertainment show. It's that typical seventies European pop show thing where the performers are, are wearing mad shit and going mental, and everyone's just sitting there as if they're at a funeral. It's wonderful. I've I found a picture of Ivan Lacomble now, and it is terrifying. By the way, of, of what he looks like these days. Oh really? It, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, mate, describe. Um, well, basically, um, he's the same size as he was then, but his hair is kind of white, and he looks like somebody who might have been of interest to um, the the police, <laughs> uh, shall we say? Um, okay. Basically, we need to stick this photo on on the blog. Yes, uh, we will. This, we will. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Good skills, good skills. The, the, one of the best things about him as well is when they film it from a low angle, you see behind the congas and you realise that under that, that crazy poncho, he's wearing black suit trousers and shoes, <laughs> <laughs> which you never would have expected. The trouble with this clip is it's hard to talk about it in words yeah. without destroying the magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I made the mistake of first watching this in a state of artificial relaxation, <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing for the whole song. It's that... That kind of laughter that has a life of its own, yeah. right? Because this, what you see here, uh, and the reason why you can't describe it in words, it has the same strange quality as a successful Spike Milligan sketch, mm. or maybe Reeves and Mortimer. That quality which is so conspicuously missing from their unsuccessful sketches, yeah. which is a sort of indefinable wrongness and disorder with... Uh, <laughs> So many clashing absurdist elements that they balance perfectly and, and create a kind of a, a weird power where the whole thing just seems to lift off. <laughs> and you can't stop laughing and you can't really explain why except that it's just funny. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the, I mean, the nearest thing I've seen to this in music previously is that uh, clip of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band doing Canyons of Your Mind on... BBC in 1968 but even that has to build it doesn't have the one punch knockout effect (laughs) of of two man sound the thing is um, yeah everything Taylor says is absolutely true Mm. and it's overwhelmingly funny to the extent that I I didn't even notice the song I I was struggling to pay attention to to the song which um, apparently I think from uh, what Mike Reed said in, in the intro was some kind of holiday hit that people have, you know, bought abroad. And it's a kind of fairly forgettable bit of Latin disco. Look, if you want to know how 
just incredible the the actual visual appearance of two man sound are. Um, Legs and Co, or at least half of Legs and Co involved. We've not even talked about them yet. We usually pile <laughs> yeah, straight into the, the fact, Legs and Coners. Also, it, I don't know if it's a coincidence. They've picked Rosie and Jill, who are by far uh, the best looking mm. members of Legs and Co. So it adds this sort of conventional beauty and glamour, um, which make the band look even more bizarre by contrast. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the record is nothing amazing it's got a nice little instrumental break which is very understated and striking it's shaking cuba by the gibson brothers isn't it really <laughs> yeah it's there's not a lot to it if you're not swaying on a foreign dance floor with a bunch of sweating grace brothers dickheads from <laughs> 1970s maidstone drinking out of a drinking out of a halved pineapple you know what i mean stinking of failed deodorant <laughs> It's so perfect that our job on these podcasts is to describe performances on top of the pops. But when something comes along that's absolutely yeah. astounding, we're fucking rubbish, aren't we? we? It just floors us. We cannot, we cannot no. say anything. All you can do is yeah. watch and yeah. laugh. And, and and by the way, um, the the exoticism that they're going for here and and achieving in a mm. in a weird way that they're achieving exoticism in in a way that they didn't intend. It's not so much exoticism of of the place or the sound it's more of the spirit of it the the mood of these people having this insanely good time is so un-british that's what's exotic about it and then it's that is highlighted further by the fact that we then yes. see the crowd and there's and there's these yes. two girls in the crowd who we're going to dis- who who we're yes. going to meet in the deirdre twins yes yes they both <laughs> look like deirdre barlow yes. um and so yeah, they're, they're grinning at the camera, looking like Deirdre Barlow, and and then you've got a contrast with these absolute lunatics on the stage, who, even though they're only from Belgium, um, might as well come from the moon. It, it's it's hair bear who catches your eye, but I would like to know more about the salty flamingo with his <laughs> dazed smile. I'd like to sit down with him and hear his tales of the sea. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I. He'd tell you all about, you know, how he saw a mermaid and that, and you'd look into his deep brown Belgian eyes and you realise he genuinely means it. Find out about his uh, his rivalry with Captain Birdseye. He once <laughs> had him, <keel> <laughs> him keel-hauled for wearing a tie-dye neckerchief. Um, <laughs> there's a whole world behind, uh, you know, and there's bandy-legged Jesus on bass and uh, <laughs> just a massive... A massive beak in a Hawaiian shirt playing keyboards. It's just, I I could watch, if this clip was half an hour, I wouldn't get bored. <laughs> no, no. And of course, right at the end, right at the end, he's because he's, he's bongo playing a little bit suspect, isn't it? Yeah, well, he, he knocks one of them over at one point. <laughs> well, yes. And then has to kind there of sneakily that. push it back up again. Yeah, and um, you know, he, at, at the end, he, he tries to do that finger snappy thing, which goes a bit like this, but he can't do it, and he's smiling, and it, it just looks like he's wanking. It's it's a bit of a masturbatory gesture <laughs> done really cheerfully, though. So you know, if he was calling you a wanker, that face, how could you argue? He, he with wants that to face? put a bit of mayonnaise on your chips. Yes, though, basically. <laughs> an enormous amount of masturbation in this podcast. <laughs> But yeah, anyone who who still uh, doesn't bother to check out the video playlist. I... Yeah, if you're still listening to this and you've not paused it and gone off to check YouTube, man, 
What the fuck is wrong with you? Your fucking your eyes can do more justice to this than yeah. our mouths and brains. That's probably all we can say now, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Welcome back to the people who've just watched it on YouTube. Wasn't it fucking mint? <laughs> so the following week, Keital America, which is how are you, America? All the better for seeing you. <laughs> yes, oh yes. The following week, Ketal America nudged up six places to number 46, its highest position. Oh, man. Two-man sound would continue to have chart success throughout mainland Europe in the 80s, but not here. We just couldn't handle the Belgianness, could we? However, in 2010, a Belgian court ruled that Lou de Prick, sailor boy himself, was the singer of Saplan Pour Moi, causing Plastic Bertrand to reveal that he had not sung a note on his first four wow. LPs. Yeah, the clue is in the name. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, the, sh- the, the number one shocking thing is that he hadn't sung on four LPs. The second and biggest shocking thing was he there had are four, four LPs. LPs. <laughs> <laughs> There you are, some ideas for the fashion wear on the beach this summer. One of the best singles around at the moment is currently number 28. It comes from Generation X and it's King Rocker. After some low-level for 1979 homophobic mockery, Reed introduces one of the best singles around at the moment, King Rocker by Generation X. Formed in London in 1976 as Chelsea, Generation X were named after the Jane Deverson and Charles Hamblet book about youth culture, which the lead singer Billy Idol's mam was reading at the time. After being picked up by Andy Chazowski, they were the first band to play his new punk club, The Roxer, in December of 1976. They were one of the first punk bands to appear on Top of the Pops in September of 1977, when their debut single, Your Generation, got to number 36, and were immediately set upon as middle-class sellouts by other bands and a considerable chunk of the music press. This song, about a boxing match between Elvis and John Lennon, has been produced by Ian Hunter. It's a follow-up to Ready, Steady, Go, which got to number 47 in March of 1978, and it's up this week from number 31 to number 28. Before we delve into anything else, Elvis versus John Lennon in a fight. Who's going to win? Elvis all, all day long. All right, not Lennon, as, ter- as he turns out in this song. No, Elvis got kung fu moves, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be Lennon because uh, he was still alive. Yeah, but even then, even then, Elvis sight. in a coffin versus John Lennon. Apparently, when they did the autopsy on John Lennon, the the coroner couldn't believe uh, that a human being could have that little muscle on them. Mm. Apparently, he was skinny as a rake, but all his muscles had uh, just vanished to the point where he was basically a skeleton with some skin wrapped around yeah. it. And talking of Elvis, uh, Billy Idol, he, he's in the early stages of his Elvis mouth fist brandishing routine, but it's not quite there yet, is it? 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I think he looks amazing. I think yes, he, he does. He looks like um, somebody out of that "Don't Be a Dummy" Lee Cooper um, advert yeah. um, meets a young Elvis um, with yeah. added Alvin Starr's hand movements towards the camera. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, he's got amazing hair, beautiful face, great jacket, even the brooch on his shirt. It just he looks so fucking cool. Um, yeah, and this is what I was saying earlier about the difference between the London bands and the the non-London bands. Yeah, yeah. These lot have been done, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, he's been there from the beginning with the Bromley contingent and all that, and a lot mm. of them were very kind of fashionista for the time, I suppose. Mm. Um, and the rest of the band, at least, don't let the side down. They don't look amazing or anything, but, you know, yeah. they, they, they look all right, um, I suppose, to the, the members. Um I just, I just think this, this, this is one of the great top of the pops performances. We've had two in a row now. I think mm. Two Man Sound followed by Generation X doing King Rocker. That's a hell of a one too. That really is yeah. double, a real double whammy there. I, yes. I, I genuinely think this is one of the the great TOTP performances. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Billy Idol. You look at him here, and he's obviously good looking enough and silly enough that he's going to make a great record like White Wedding one day. Mm. But. I don't know, even all that white hair quiffed up, he looks like Joe Brown or, <laughs> or Heinz. Oh. You know? I don't know. It's, it's, see, my, see, my theory here is that if you look at tail end pop punk in 1979, mm. and to some extent, you know, ever since, it's a battle between the mentalities behind these two stage names, Billy Idol and Nicky Tesco. Yeah. Um, it's heroic vanity and make-believe versus sly would-be subversive sarcasm now to some extent i think they're both dead ends but in the short term they both have something to be said for them yeah but in a way i think this is a worse record than sound of the suburbs no even though no 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 even though boys are fighting even even though it's it's kind of better produced and better done and it's sort of clever and stuff but I just think that there's something mm. weirdly charmless about this uh, which is the one criticism you can't make of the members record um, I mean it's you can't loathe a record about a boxing match between Elvis Presley and John Lennon for the title of <laughs> King Rocker stroke King Kong but <laughs> I don't know it would be easier to take if it was by a, a Belgian group or a, a Czech punk band or something so you could sort of chuckle about their their naff take on punk rock but the fact that it's london scenesters yeah. i don't know it just seems too hard to forget that this is a joke being played on you and unlike with zig zig sputnik you're kind of, you're not being invited to laugh along with them if you're smart enough to catch on but it's you, there's definitely a clear line between this and zig zig sputnik which of course it's the connection being tony james who appears here looking like a <laughs> A slightly camp hand solo, but the the it the, it's got the same quality as Zig Zig Sputnik of a sort of uh, it's like a, a entirely percussive record with a sort of contrived simplicity. And there's a lot of name dropping of of sort of boring pop culture icons and a lot of uh, willful fake stupidity, but it's not funny. Um, so I kind of end up thinking, what's the point? I mean, these, ah. these tail-end commercial punk records, they baffle me a bit because the it's like they... It's just like punk only worked because it was musically, it was kind of frenzied and austere. 
So if you replace that with a pop approach, you just end up with pop records that aren't particularly well played or written and don't have a lot to recommend them. And it's like that's where indie music, you know, the modern indie music came from. No, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. This is a super exciting record. I <laughs> wrong, a- wrong, wrong, King wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll state up front, but also kind of as an aside that I loved ZZ Sputnik, but that's probably one for another day. You do surprise um, me. Yeah, it is. A, yeah. Oh, me too. It is, it is a purely percussive record. And you say that like it's a bad thing. What this is, it's turbocharged. No, that's not a bad thing. It's turbocharged Bo Diddley. That's what it is. It's a turbocharged Bo Diddley record. And it's super exciting. It really is. I'd say underpowered I, Bo Diddley. I, 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 love, I just love Billy Idol anyway as a personality. Um, I think last week, Sarah talking about um, uh, we got a fuzzbox and we're going to use it. Or, or fuzzbox. Um, described them as brilliant decades. I think I think that's right. Well, Billy Idol is is a brilliant idiot. He's just this. Um, he's, he's the perfect fifty uh, fifty combination mm. of dumb and beautiful for a rock star. I, and you know he knows it. He understands his own dumbness, and he, mm. he played on it in the eighties. But um, oh, there's there's just so many stories about him. Like the t- <laughs> you got you got to read his autobiography. It's quite so many. There's, there's a bit where he's uh, he's had a one night stand with someone, and he's fist. Oh, I knew you. I knew you'd pick this one out. Ah oh, right, you know. Carry on. Well, he's, he's he's fisting someone, and basically she gets all kind of <laughs> she gets all kind of clamped up, and he can't get his hand back out. <laughs> There's that one. The other one also involves his hand. It's when <laughs> Nile Rogers. This is in the Nile Rogers autobiography, um, Le Freak, which is amazing. Um, uh, they're both hanging out in some uh, super celeb packed bar in, yeah. in New York in the eighties, and they spot David Bowie um, over in the corner, and they're both really big fans. And uh, I think at this point, Nile Rogers hadn't worked with Bowie yet. So he says, come on, let's go and talk to him. So they go over. And, yeah, this uh, is how he was introduced to Bowie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, Billy Idol just goes, oh, David Bowie. And then he vomits into his hands because uh, he's been <laughs> drinking so much. And then he sort of like wipes his hands on his trousers and then extends his hand to shake Bowie's hand. <laughs> <laughs> he's amazing. Lovely. I, I, love, I love Billy Idol. Um, and I think this is one of the great kind of, um, tail end pop punk records. It's just a great record. It's 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 a magnificent, arrogant rock star performance that he gives here, and I just totally love it. Well, the the two things I want to chuck in is that that he he's almost fully formed Billy Idol here, yes. but he's not putting those fists up with the authority that he 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 brought to those fists in the eighties. He's a bit like he's a bit like one of them punching puppet things. You know what I mean? <laughs> At the minute. Um, and, and the other thing is, is I, I really like this song. I can't. I'm looking back now, thinking, why did I buy this over um, Billy fucking Joel? What the? What was I thinking? Oh yeah, in the Battle of the Billies, it's fair to say that that he comes out on top. The thing I couldn't get my head round at the time was was I understood that punks and Ted's hated each other, and all of a sudden here's a punk band being Ted's and going on about rockers and singing about Elvis. And it it blew my tiny mind. It really yeah, did. Changing the paradigm. Well, when when Elvis Presley died, um, Danny Baker had to because uh, it was it was announced on stage at a punk club, um, either the Vortex at the Roxy, at yeah. the Roxy. Um, and uh, um, Danny Baker got up on stage because everybody was sort of cheering Elvis's death, mm. and he was, he just took the microphone and said, "No, no, you fucking idiots!" You know, and saying that you know. Uh, Elvis was was way more punk than any of them, and all that all that kind of stuff. And um, mm. so that I, I would imagine that if Billy Idol was there that night, he'd have been on Baker's side. Put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm basically pro Idol, even though I'm not that fond of this record. I think I'm 
also I think I'm I'm slightly biased against Generation X because they were the un, unfortunate subjects of a particularly embarrassing publicity shot where they're all smoking cigarettes which have been freshly lit making it all too obvious that they've just lit up especially for the <laughs> camera to look hard and cool and that's the one bit of advice I'd give young smokers in rock don't let anyone <laughs> near you with a camera unless it's gone down far enough that it looks like you just so happen to be puffing stagger away the lighting up yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned the way that the media treated Generation X um they weren't Chuck very popular with the kind of um, punk writers at NME, for example. So um, mm. Tony Parsons uh, interviewed interviewed them, who, Tony Parsons being a, a fucking idiot of the non-brilliant type, um, and uh, he was he was taking the piss out of Generation X in the article for all drinking orange juice during the interview rather yeah. rather than getting pissed. And it turned out that the reason was they were all on anti- antibiotics because they all had VD at the same time. <laughs> so the following week, King Rocker jumped eight places to number 16 and would get as high as number 11, Generation X's highest charting single. However, their standing in the punk community sunk even further, leading them to be bottled off stage by UK subs fans in a gig at the Lyceum later that month. The follow-up, Valley of the Dolls got to number 23 in April of this month, their last top 40 placing. Valley of the Dolls lineup split up in November of this year. (laughs) Idol and Tony James renamed themselves Gen X and put out one LP before going their separate ways in 1981. Generation X and King Rocker. The sisters have come up with a record to satisfy everybody's ego. Smile. Everybody's a star. Even us three. We're stars, you know. With the Deirdre women on either side of him, introduces Everybody is a Star by the Pointer Sisters. Spawned in the late 40s and early 50s in Oakland, the Pointer Sisters, June, Anita, Bonnie and Ruth, started as a nightclub duo in 1969, then signed to Atlantic Records as a trio and then became a quartet in 1972. After a phase as a 40s jazz revivalist group, Ruth left them to have kids, but not before recording Pinball Number Count for Sesame Street. One of the greatest things ever in the whole world. You know this, don't you? No. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's the Pointer Sisters. No way. Yes way. This is their first appearance on Top of the Pops, a cover of the Sly and the Family Stone single, which got to number one in the USA in 1970, and it's a new entry at number 61. Before we do that, you, do you know the other great uh, Sesame Street um, song bit? Do you remember the one with the spies and the race cars that went... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Know that one? Yeah. Nope. Do you know who sang that? Go on. Grace Slick. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. 
I've got to say, before we dive into this, I, I love Sly and the Family Stone. My favourite band in the whole fucking world. Breaks my heart that I'm going to be talking about Shaking Stevens and show Waddy Waddy more on this podcast than them. And I love this song. And I love the Pointer Sisters, but no, mate. This, this, this ain't doing anything for me. The thing that's always put me off this song is the title. Um, mm. Because nothing could be grimmer than a world where the title of this song was accurate and everybody was a star. Partly because then the concept of being a star would cease to be meaningful. Uh, and partly... Well, like it does nowadays, pretty much. Yeah, and partly because it would mean that everybody was a preening, narcissistic wanker. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> there, there are sort of two phases in their hits, really, aren't there? There's the kind of quite rootsy and soulful um, things like uh, um, Fire and slow hand and then you've got the, the more glossy 80s things like automatic and i'm mm. so excited and jump and this is kind of caught somewhere in the middle um yeah. they they look like they've just run amok in the shepherd's butch branch of the spastic society um, it's <laughs> it's a it's a weird look they got going on there um the audience are not so excited this is not exactly jump or automatic uh, mm. either um but i gotta admit the thing i enjoyed about it is um, it's Ruth Pointer, isn't it? The one with the deep voice. Yeah. Um, and she does crack me up, and I know it's really bad, but she's the one who, on automatic, goes, you know, look what you done to me. Yeah. That's her. She's that one. Um, yeah. So when when she comes in, uh, you if you haven't seen them, you, you expect it to be a bloke. Were it not for the name, the Pointer Sisters. And and what I like about this is that, like male soul bands like the Temptations or Stylistics, they've got a bass man, except it's a woman. Um, yeah. And they actually toured. The Pointer Sisters went on tour with The Temptations. And I, I, I wonder if that kind of maybe sort of gave them a little light bulb over their heads or that's just, oh, that's just how she sings. That's how it has to be. Huh. Um, but it's it's not it's not a great record. But I, I, I quite like the way that they're able to turn their hand to pretty much any style. They used to get grief for not sounding black enough, apparently. They used right. to get grief for, for making records that sounded too kind of country. Um, right, uh, but they they also used to get racism come the other way. There, there was um, a gig that they uh, did in Nashville in 1975, where there was an after party that they went to for, for their own gig, and when they arrived, they were taken around the back and left in the kitchen because the person who answered the door assumed that they were the hired help. Oh, fuck's sake! So there you go. But no, this isn't a great record. Yeah, and they don't really do justice to that bar, 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 bar bits. No. <laughs> like, this was always the problem with, uh, like when I was writing in the 90s, you'd get all these indie bands do it, like where they'd just got into Pet Sounds or something, and they'd try and do mm. a record where it had like a bar, 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 bar section on it, sung in the round. But the music they wrote was so pedestrian. Like they thought it was going to come out like the middle of God Only Knows. But in fact, what it would end up sounding like is the end theme from Jim will fix it. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it's just like a, a an aimless stream of ba 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 over some yeah. boring chords. Now, this obviously isn't going for a Beach Boys sound, but it's it feels like the same pointless torrent of non-words for no reason, creating no effect. I mean, the kids aren't getting down to this at all, are they? Well, no, no. Who, who can blame them? So the following week, Everybody is a Star dropped four places to number 65. However, the follow-up, Fire, got to number 34 in April of this year and they'd have seven top 40 hits in the 80s. 
What's your favourite out of them, Simon? Um, I think Slow Hand for me, actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I'm an automatic person myself. I am. I am an automatic lover. <laughs> automatic lover. Which is why we've laid on a personal sugar-driven limousine for you, except if you live at 83 World Gardens. Car 67, car 67, where are you? Come in 6767, can you hear me? his own does a rubbish link about limousines before introducing car 67 by driver 67 formed by paul phillips a wolverhampton musician and music journalist and his brother-in-law pete zorn an american musician who was a long-standing member of richard thompson's backing band driver 67 signed to logo records in 1978 and started work on a debut lp in the meantime, Phillips, who had spent three months working on the side as a London cabbie, knocked out a demo of a novelty song that he'd been working on, and it was immediately rushed out. It's up this week from number 11 to number 7, but two weeks before, when it made its Top of the Pops debut while it was at number 10, orders were coming in for 20,000 copies a day, but the record plant could only manage to press 20,000 copies that week, meaning that there was a chance of it getting to number one that was spurned. How do we start talking about this song then? Well, at least it isn't Convoy GB. Yes, there is that, yes. Yeah, that's a very strong point in its favour, isn't it? See, although this isn't quite a great record, um, I really love it um, because it's the best best kind of uh, novelty record in that... It's a song with an unusual scenario which genuinely draws you in. Like, uh, to me, it's in the same vein as a lot of those records from the late 70s, early 80s, which take a novel scenario and tell the story from the point of view of whoever's deepest in it. Like, Hello, This Is Joni, uh, or Centrefold by Jay Giles Band, or um, 86753090, Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone, which is uh, another amazing record. This is one of the few English examples, um, and it's also one of the few English records that genuinely understands country music, both on a musical level uh, and also spiritually, without trying to sound American. Because it's not really a country record, but it takes that, um, that the form of the melody and the spirit of the music, the spirit of the lyrics, and just plonks it down in the suburbs of Wolverhampton, like in Merry Hill or Ettingshaw or The Lunt. Um, and it takes the the alienated, sort of isolated, introspective, romantic figure of the American truck driver and anglicises him into a provincial minicab driver, which is perfect. It's the same... Um, the same qualities uh, in a smaller, sadder environment with no majestic landscape and no heroic mythology. Uh, 
Well, he's just a man that sort of glides almost unnoticed through other people's lives. Uh, and now we hear his story, complete with the, the deep damaged alienation of the late night cabbie that comes over in the way he sings, you know I'm only here to please you. Um, do you think, think there's a touch brilliant. of do you think there's a touch of Wichita lineman about that as well? Yeah, yeah, but it's a it's a it's a common sort of theme or, or trope in in American music, um, which you don't get a lot in British music, and you do here. Um, I think it's fantastic. Um, although, yeah, I mean, you can't make huge claims for this, but in a quiet way, I think it's a really good record. Is it important that the uh that it is set in the West Midlands. Um, yeah, because just as Phil Mogg had that unmistakable London look, um, Paul Phillips is so clearly from the West Midlands with his Mm-mm. hangdog look and his mournful eyes and soft chin. <laughs> and you can see it. He looks. He, he looks like a chubby Joe Mangala neighbours, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, and of course, in this clip, he's playing both the driver, well, as on the record, he's playing both the driver and control. It took me a while to cotton on to that, I have to say. Yeah, mm. and as control, uh, back at base, he has that look of the kind of popular Midlands entertainer who might have got work on Tiswa. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> like some fucking adenoidal charisma vacuum, and also, he, why is he got wearing... a touch of the Carol Jesus about him? Hasn't yeah, he? yeah, yeah. And why is he wearing a hat with Driver sixty seven written on it? If he sat no in idea. base, see, if I was Driver sixty seven, I'd be a bit. I think I'd find that a bit creepy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Why, yeah. But I do love the little sets that Top of the Pops used to build for novelty records yeah. now and then. And this is the best of all. They did. Um, like Chalk Dust, The Umpire Strikes Back by yeah. The Brat. I seem to remember they set up a little tennis court. Uh, yeah. And Toast by Street Band, which we've yes. already covered. Um, yeah. I, I mean, in this in this case, you've got uh, you've got the uh, the cab op- operator on the stage with the band. Yeah. And then it cuts, to, it keeps cutting to him again as the driver in, uh, in a car, which... Uh, would that be an, a, a, a Cortina? Um, yeah, or a, like a Morris Marina or something. Yeah. 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 Something from that yeah. period. Just the yeah. shell of it, like you used to get on Z cars in the 60s. That's right, yeah. yeah. The only thing that spoils this record or the scenario is how understanding control is <laughs> about his personal situation. Yeah. Like from the chat I've ever overheard, in cabs between driver and base. This bloke is a soft touch. Anyone who used to take Meadway cabs in London in the 90s and remembers the irascible Cockney who always <laughs> seemed to be uh, the control for them. Yeah, this is a very, very different approach. <laughs> I just say, right, I, I, I think this record is rubbish, but I've really enjoyed hearing Taylor make a case for it. That was just mm-hmm. really... Really fascinating to hear that. Um, it it doesn't do it for me, and I'm baffled. Uh, it, it, it's, its popularity completely baffles me. It's not like I think, oh, it's it's horrible, but I can see why it's sold. I've, I'm genuinely stunned to find out. Could that have been it, number one. Yeah, that it it sold half a million copies. I I I don't get it, but I I really enjoyed hearing Taylor make a case for it from the performance itself. Probably what I enjoyed most are the little glimpses we get of the backing band. 
Um, yes. Who I don't know if they're just BBC musicians. Uh, they they possibly are. Um, but they're these kind of craggy old lags in tuxedos who look like they've been roped in from the nearest Butlins, which given that, you know, it's London, is probably quite a long way away. I'll tell you what they remind me of, actually. Um, if you see any old footage of the Moody Blues in the late 60s, at a time when the Moody Blues would have been about 25 years old, but they look like they're 50, um, them, uh, um, except for pretty boy Justin Hayward, the singer, everyone apart from Justin Hayward, that's what this band looked like. They looked like the Moody Blues without Justin Hayward. Well, you you say that his band's anonymous, but um, and I know you can hardly see him, but the, the drummer is actually Richard Burgess, soon to be of landscape and Einstein go-go fame. Simon, do you not think there's a weird sort of faint but uncomfortable similarity between this record and This Is What She's Like by Dexy? Really? <laughs> a conversation <laughs> between a soulful lead singer and a sort of deadpan West Midlander who just talks. I, I, for me, the, the um, similarity starts and ends at the accent, but okay, I'll take that. So the following week, Car 67 dropped two places to number nine, but it ended up selling half a million copies. The follow-up, well, I can't tell yeah. you about the follow-up because cause Taylor barged in right before uh, we, we started putting this together and said, don't look at the follow-up, I want to surprise you. So, Mr Parks... I step back, I give you the floor. Yeah, the one thing that throws a little bit of a cast over my love of this record. But the most incredible thing about Driver 67 is their choice of follow-up single, which is a song called Headlights. And anyone who's ever heard this will be in no doubt as to why I'm bringing it up here. Um, It's got the same flat, dry sound as this record, but with these low, ominous synthesizer notes so it sounds like the music from the denim advert. Right. And the lyrics from the point of view of Driver 67 are about him driving around, stalking and menacing a woman who's just rejected him sexually with the very clear suggestion of impending assault and or murder. Now, he right. tries to put some distance between the scenario of this song and that song by having him driving a truck Christ. rather than a cab. But as it's credited to Driver 67, and it has the same kind of sound as this record, you just have to assume that it's him when he's not at work. Now, I've I've got the, the lyrics here. Um, in the first verse, he's driving along with this woman. He tries to kiss her. She's not interested. So I say, baby, no, that ain't no way to talk. She says, honey, you ain't got no respect. I think I'll get out and walk. Oh, run, run, baby, running down the road, trying to be brave in the oh, night. Fucking hell. Uh, uh, honey, you ain't kidding me none, because I can pick you up in my headlights. I can see your face in my headlights. I can see your fright in the dead of the night. I'll pick you up in my headlights. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Rum, rum, baby, going down the road for a country mile or two. But just when, baby, you think you're all right, I'll pick you up in my headlights. Full speed ahead and with my full beam on, I can see you praying for dawn. Shit. But just when, baby, you think you're out of sight, I'll pick you up in my headlights. I go anyway, the wind blows, that's where I'm going to be. There's nowhere to run, no place to hide. You can't get away from me. 
Thought for the Day was brought to you by the Reverend Taylor Parks. <laughs> now, if this was by Nick Cave or someone, you'd just think, yeah, OK. But it's by Driver 67. And the horror of this song washes back into Car 67 because now you feel like you know what kind of man Driver 67 really is. Uh, and his ex at... 83 Royal Gardens is actually a bit lucky here and you can (laughs) never hear this record the same way again and you wonder what they're trying to achieve like like they think okay we've got got to have a follow up well what else do minicab drivers do be racist or they thought well novelty records are old hat uh, so maybe the new thing will be records with the leering sadistic misogyny of a 1970s Mm. Italian horror film and of course, we didn't we didn't know at the time, but you know, Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, can we do two man sound again? Yes. <laughs> First call for eighty three Royal Guards. Can somebody give me a time for the pickup? Stand by six seven. We'll have another job for you shortly. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Time for the pickup at eighty three Royal Guards. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'm free, I'm free. Car 67, driver 67, currently sitting at number seven this week. And this week's brand new number one is a great record. It comes from Blondie, it's Heart of Glass, and here to dance to it, our legs and go. Reed is brandishing a bass guitar. The bass guitar of Tony James of Generation X, in fact. And we can see him in the background with his head between his legs and his head in his hands, as if ashamed that he's been taxed by a Radio 1 DJ. Yeah, no self-respect joining in this fucking Radio 1 japery. Yeah, or he's had a premonition about his lead singer fucking off to America. And becoming massive while he's pricking about with Zig Zig Sputnik. That that pose he's doing with the bass, um, the way he's got it pointed towards the camera, mm. it reminds me of a particular photo of Bob Dylan from the sixties. Taylor probably uh, the one I'm talking about. Yes. Mm. And and I'm wondering whether that was deliberate. It's also a bit like a kind of um, Elvis Costello album sleeve photo, mm. and um, that's clearly how he fancies himself, isn't it? A sort of yes. Dylan Costello kind of new wave poet. Also, the fact that Mike Reed was a guitarist, not a bass player, suggests that he went to the guitarist of Generation X and said, can I have a guitar? No, fuck off. Fuck off. So he had to go to Tony James instead. And he introduces the brand new number one, Heart of Glass by Blondie. We've discussed Blondie in chart music number 13, but fuck it, it's Blondie, we'll discuss them again. This is the follow-up to Hanging on the Telephone, which got to number five in December of 1978, and was still in the charts at number 71 this week. It's the third single released in the UK from the LP Parallel Lines, but it was practically one of the first songs ever written by Debbie Harry and Chris Stein back in the mid-70s, when it was demoed in 1975 under the working title The Disco Song. When the band met up with their new producer, Mike Chapman, he asked to hear every song they had in the tank, and he jumped on this one, encouraging them to go completely disco glitter balls out on it. After an amendment to the lyric, 
which involved replacing Pain in the Ass with Heart of Glass for most of the song. It was tacked onto the LP. It was the highest new entry at number six the week before. It's jumped up to number one this week and hallelujah is being emoted to by Legs and Co. Now, many places to start here, but I was I was quite shocked to uh, to be reminded that this is a you know an album track that for an album that's you know been around for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's a bit like uh, "Don't You Want Me" on Dare being a kind of an afterthought as a single release. Mm. Um, I think uh, what Chapman has done here is is brilliant. Um, he's what he's obviously done is it's well it's it's one of several attempts by rock bands to harness what Giorgio Moroder had done on Donna Summer's I Feel Love. And it's also mm. one of several kind of late 70s attempts for, by rock bands to, to make a decent disco record. So you've got things like I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss and Miss You by the Rolling Stones being obvious examples. Um, mm. The thing, and I, I feel heretical for saying this because I know that Heart of Glass mm. is a, a hugely important record, but um, I don't particularly love it. Um, it's it's something that it's one of those records that once you hear the intro, you realise that you're settled in for long haul, and it kind of it's it's it plods. It's a very superior glacial plod, but it's a plod mm. all the same. Um, so, I, and I, I I I do feel like I'm 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 saying something absolutely um, vile and unconscionable by by saying that. And as a DJ, um, it's one of those records you've always got up your sleeve if you lose the dance floor you stick it on everybody goes nuts it never fails but i i don't love it in the way that it probably deserves to be loved because i know it, it is um a massive and a very very important record yeah and i i can see what mike chapman's tried to do with this and he's trying to make it as robotic and machine-like as possible and he does that admirably well because as i understand it um, I, I think I'm right in saying there were no drum machines used on it. It's purely, um, it, it's, it's done by taking right. Clem Burke's actual live drumming and just kind of chopping and pasting it till it sounds like it might as well be a drum machine. Um, right. And I'm, I'm not alone in not being super keen on this record. Apparently, Clem Burke himself hated it. Um, yeah. Clem Burke's one of my favourite drummers. I think he's actually my favourite drummer in the world. Certainly my favourite rock drummer. Um I could, I'm not going to say I could watch him play all, all day, but he's he's great to watch and he's kind of showy and unshowy at the same time. In that um, uh-huh. he's you know he's one of these guys he'll he'll juggle his sticks and he'll he'll add lots of fills in between each bar or each verse, but he's just so solid, fall to the floor. When he hits a drum, it stays hit, and I think he's absolutely brilliant. And um, I, I can see why he would resent um, his drumming being treated and uh you know uh, manipulated in this way yeah um i can also see why maybe it wouldn't have sounded the same if it was him uh him doing it uh you know just purely um allowed to play for four minutes without any dicking about so Mm. um it, it 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 does what it does um successfully and it's it's perfect there's nothing wrong with it it's one of the most important records ever made but I'm not in love with it. There you go. Why is it most? Why why is that? Because um, it, I think I think it it, it signals um, the punk generation absolutely um, getting over the hatred of disco, the whole the whole disco sucks movement and all that stuff. I mean, Blondie yeah. did take a lot of stick for selling out, but 
I think they embrace disco in such a wholehearted, well, apart from Clem Burke, uh, in such su- such a cool way. Um, and the record getting to number one, if it just got to number two, that that would have been almost a you know a sign of failure. But they gone disco and they got to number one. There's there's nothing from their point of view to regret about that. So, it's the first number one as well, isn't first it? First of several, yeah. And uh, yeah, f- from just just from that kind of cultural point of view, um, punk and disco coming together at the tail end of the seventies really set up the eighties, didn't it? Because that, that's what the early eighties was: was punk meets disco. I'm a, more of a traditionalist on this record, and I think it's amazing. Um, I mean, I've said my bit on Blondie before on it, but I think this is one of their greats. And you know, nothing I can say is going to depart from uh, conventional wisdom but I don't know I think that unlike a lot of what we've heard on this show it's not locked into a time and place although it's an incredibly contemporary 1979 record there's a sort of timelessness to it in that you could create something with the same feel today and it'd work Um, and what works particularly well is the fact that it's called Heart of Glass it's got that double meaning like you know Mm breakable and vulnerable but also in the sense of glassy like uh, disengaged and unemotional like Debbie Harry's vocal and like the effect produced by the drums uh, and the lyric doesn't clarify which is the appropriate reading as indeed it shouldn't and the whole record has that same cold warmth or or warm chill to it uh, um, it's just a shame that Blondie couldn't be here uh, and so we see Legs and Co instead. Now it's a real showcase for Legs and Co. This, and when you look into it, mm. this was the favourite routine of most of the members of Legs and Co. Really, presumably, yeah. I mean, probably because they weren't acting out the lyrics to Disco Duck or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah, they were, they were doing serious dancing to a great record with no gimmicks. Um, I mean, you know, when you look at it, it's a bit crappy, like a lot of their stuff is, but. You know, it was enough to distract me from one of the best records in 1979. So either it succeeds at some level uh, or I'm a tragic old roué <laughs> 10 <laughs> years past the point when I could dream of interesting legs and co with my smooth and sharply defined young man's face. <laughs> so here I am. Here I am watching this display like a dying soldier gazing into the sunrise. Um, <laughs> They're in different costumes made of the same material, but but individually cut off in different places. So it's it's either they've been given some samples from a factory that makes slinky costumes for dancers, and they thought, fuck it, this will do. Or they've only got, I don't know, about the six of them, and they've only got three costumes. So they've gone, well, if we cut this leg off here and... You can have that, Jill. Um, uh, Pauline, you have this bra, and uh, yeah, we'll work something out because we're legs and co. Yeah, well, I, I like how they've gone for this uh, black and white theme, which is sort of echoing the sleeve of Parallel Lines by Blondie, of course. Yes. Um, and yeah, it is It is a good, it's it's a dignified legs and co routine. And it's, pre- it's pretty yes. good as well. Um, although I did start laughing at the moment where they all in unison start goose-stepping, if you remember that bit. Um, yes. Yeah, they were very fond of that around about 1979. Yeah. They did it again to uh, that Sex Pistols song we spoke about. Silly yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that going yeah. on. In in very high heels as mm-hmm. well. Um, 
And the director is loving his new toy, isn't he? With the uh, the split screen, Integious, the split screen yeah. effects, including at one point diagonal split screen. Yes, which normally you only yeah. see in like old American uh, TV shows where somebody's phoning someone else. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> But isn't isn't it a shame that, that you know there's going to be some dads sitting there thinking oh well Debbie R is going to be on she's a bit of all right and then there'll be legs and coat and it's been mashed into one thing. Well, yeah. And they've seen you know they've already seen a, um, a, a, a you know a third of legs and co with uh, with uh, three man sound but well, you know they've been, they've been put then. off by they've been put off by people so <laughs> you know it's no the thing about legs and co there's a sort of a uh, almost like a hard edge on them, which you never got with Pan's people. It's mm. like the it's shifted, and the the sort of sleazy innocence of the early seventies, which made Pan's people seem natural, has been drained away. And there's a there's a slightly different uh, atmosphere to their their sequences. It's a little bit less friendly uh, and a bit more aggressive, which should be sexy, but it often feels a little bit too professional for that. And also. They're often styled so that they look like one of Bodie's girlfriends off the professionals <laughs> or yes. something like that, you know. And it's such a distinctive and unstylish look um, <laughs> that it's a bit of a problem. The, the thing is, there, there was a video for Heart of Glass and a very good video as well, I seem to recall. Um, but they chose not to play yeah. it, which is a bit odd. Yeah, that's weird, yeah. I'm assuming that the video for Heart of Glass would have been on last week's Top of the Pops because it was the highest new entry, so it was bound to have been on that. So just change it up a bit, yeah. Isn't it weird that they've decided to make an effort and gone, well, you know, people have already seen the video, so let's have some dancers instead. It is. Heart of Glass would stay at number one for four weeks before finally being usurped by tragedy by the Bee Gees. It would get to number one for a week in the USA and it became the second biggest single in the UK for 1979. Biggest selling one was? 1979, God. Um, Already talked about it in a previous episode? Nah, no idea. Bright Eyes by Art Garfunkel. Oh my God, right, yes. Heart of Glass ended up selling 1.3 million copies in the UK. Mm. The follow-up? Sunday Girl got to number one for three weeks in May of this year and so on and so forth and number ones and number ones and... Number one, that's Blondie and Heart of Glass. Will this next record be number one next week or will Blondie still be there? Don't miss next week's thrilling episode of Top of the Box. Read. On the end of a line of young ladies, says to Ra and introduces Chikatita by ABBA. We've done ABBA in practically every fucking chart music that covers 1974 to 1980, so deal with it. It's fucking ABBA. This is the follow-up to Summer Night City, which only got to number five in October of 1978. It's the first single from the forthcoming LP Voulez Vu, 
and it was premiered on the Music for UNICEF concert, which was broadcast earlier this month around the world, and also featured the Bee Gees, Earth, Wind & Fire, Rod Stewart, John Denver and Donna Summer. Consequently, half the royalties from this song were donated to UNICEF. It's this week's highest new entry at number eight. ABBA's previous single only got to number five, ABBA Clubbing Crisis. Yeah. What was it about the relationship between the British record-buying public in ABBA in the late 70s that caused this dip? I wasn't really conscious of there being a dip, although the weird thing is I, I wasn't aware of Summer Night City being a hit at the time. I think it was only when it turned up on ABBA Greatest Hits Volume 2 that um, I really got to know it. So maybe they weren't getting quite the airplay that they um, were used to. Also, the records fell off a bit. Mm. Um, if you look at it, sort of this around this period, there's a little bit of a dip in the quality of their singles. In sort of in between the the, the pop abba and then the the grown up scando divorce abba. Um, I mean, I think this is mm. not quite, but close to the worst abba single post. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Um, and that's still extremely listenable, right. uh, especially the verses, which are really lovely. But it's a massive backward step to reactivate the schlager for a post-punk world. Um, I mean, okay, you could make a pretty mm. strong case that the follow-up to this was worse, which was Does Your Mother Know? Um, but at least that's a bit weird and wrong. I mean, mm. for around this period, you just want them to mm. knock on into that adult orientated disco and then the final phase of of live almond synth pop yeah. which i love so much i mean this is just fucking around really isn't it this and i have yeah. a dream and all that stuff it's the f first twinklings of chess coming through i bought this um partly because i was a devoted abba fan at the time as any civilised person is, which is why David Stubbs is a complete heathen, of course. Um, <laughs> let it go, Simon, let it but, go. Um, I bought this, not for me, but as a birthday present for my mum, and then within probably a week, mm. I stole it back for myself. What, what yes. a horrible little brat doing that. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, the record play was in the living room, so, you know, but I, I merged it with my own collection. Um, and doing oh. that thing where you want to get the most value for money out of your records, I did really get into the B-side, which called Love Light. Really good song, actually. Um, but, yeah, Taylor's right. This is the kind of half assed kind of schlager stuff that um, yeah. isn't ABBA yeah. at their greatest. Um, I always think of um, the the pianist, it's uh, Benny, isn't it? Bouncing up and down in his in his piano stool um, when it gets into the, yeah. the, the big noisy bit at the end. Um, yeah. So... It's yeah. It's it's not. It's it's a it's a great band having a bit of an off day, um, and one one thing that um, really sort of struck me about the way they incorporate this into Top of the Pops here is that the credits have finished rolling, but they carry on with a song for a full verse and most of a chorus, as that yeah. that kind of fisheye view of the studio spins before our eyes like a ghostly mirror um, yeah. leaving us to contemplate what we had and what we've lost knowing that Top of the Pops is over for another week and leaving us there sitting sort of wringing any last drops of pleasure from the episode mm. thinking that any second now it's just going to cut to silence knowing that it's all over yeah that's the thing isn't it any second any second now this could stop yeah 
it just frustrates me because the verses to this song, you can hear something really deep and beautiful, like another direction they might have taken. And then it, that glassy umpar music comes in for the chorus and it's all blasted to hell. So the following week, Chikatita jumped up to number two and stayed there for two weeks. The follow-up, Does Your Mother Know, only got to number four. Fucking hell, ABBA only. <laughs> and ABBA would have to wait for four more singles before returning to number one with the winner takes it all in August of 1980. Even Gimme, Gimme, Gimme didn't get to number one. And that's that's got number one written all over it, hasn't it? It has. And Gimme, Gimme, Gimme felt like a kind of a comeback in a way. It, it, yeah. it felt like sort of modernising themselves and sort of almost sticking a flag in the ground again and saying, yeah, we're still relevant, we're still here. So what's on television afterwards? Well, BBC One piles straight into Blankety Blank with Jack Douglas, Beryl Reed, Diane Keane, Michael Parkinson, Lorraine Chase and Ian Wallace... And then Rhea gets hassled by a knockoff to spend his birthday with him in butterflies. After the news, it's the 1979 European Figure Skating Championship from Zagreb, then Andre Previn's Music Night, and they finish off with Tonight with Robin Day. BBC Two are showing Newsweek, the Peter Laurie film The Mask of Demetrios, then the George Cole sitcom Don't Forget to Write, and finishes off with the docked drama In a Country Churchyard, and an open-door community programme created by the Association of Irish Musicians from London. ITV have put on University Challenge, the episode of Rising Dump where Rigsby's conned by a mystic, then the streets of San Francisco, News at 10, Wish You Were Here, The New Avengers, and What The Papers Say. Oh, what a lineup! So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? That man in a car who seemed really nice. <laughs> we're talking about Peepoo. Yeah, definitely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is, isn't it? Right into the next fucking playtime as well. Yeah, everyone doing impressions of, of the percussionist from Two Man Sound. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are we buying on Saturday? Or what did we buy on Saturday? Well, I bought the ABBA single, but yep. that was for my mum. Um, yeah, I'm saying Generation X for me. Uh, Blondie, I guess. And I can't imagine myself as a kid buying a record by that monster Driver 67. Uh, but yeah. I would now. And what does this episode tell us about early 1979? Do you know what? I'm going to say nothing, because there's nothing in it that gives you that feeling of the winter of discontent and Jim Callaghan's grip slipping mm. away from him and the incipient horrors of Thatcherism just three months away. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, unless unless you can somehow read that into the mournful despair of Driver 67. I suppose what it does tell you is that the actual charts from a randomly chosen week are often not much like the legend and half of it seems to have been beamed in from the recent past or the near future which is true though isn't it in a lot of ways culture isn't neat and tidy and packed into years and decades you know people have old cars and old clothes and a lot of stuff is not contemporary or cutting edge but i wonder if those bands that are sort of the arse end of punk like the members and generation x are almost unconsciously clearing the decks it's like come on this is our last chance to bring out these stereotypical 1970s punk records before you know, the, the game's up and, and, and the, the um, tablecloth is, is whipped away from underneath us. Um, 
because I mean, I mm. guess you had a few things in early in the early eighties, like Splodge Nessa Bounds, but really that kind of oikish idea of punk just being about um, shouting in a Cockney way that was that was done. That was done, yeah. wasn't it? Well, by this point, we're, we're long past the point of punk being a danger to anything. Yeah, all that was left from here to splodginess abounds was just a, the echo of a, just the hollow echo of a laugh. Wow. And Sid's having his last bit of jelly. <laughs> and, uh, flapping his last fish. <laughs> so, me looks that's the end of chart music for this week. Don't forget... You can get on our website at www.chart-music.co.uk. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast or you can get involved with the clatter of Twitter at chartmusictotp. Thank you very much for listening, but most importantly, thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Not a problem. My name's Al Needham, and you can playfully tap my bum and feel the electricity going through you. (laughs) Chart music. Taxpayers' money, where does it go? Not even George Osborne knows When we're in power and we engage There'll be no tax on the minimum wage Leaders committed a cardinal sin Open the borders, let them all come in Illegal immigrants in every town (laughs) Oi! Now you can pack that in as soon as you like I should think so too Nobody calls him gay. Nobody. Ever. I'm sorry, that hurt. No, that hurt. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.